With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I only have one message to give you. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care what you call me. I do care what you do with this information because it's important to our survival as a species of doing it. I have no fear, and I will finish what I start, or someone will, because it needs to be done. Tonight I begin to narrate to you a special report of the Executive Intelligence Review entitled The Ugly Truth about the ADL. Now I want you to understand something. I am not talking about Jews. I am talking about a branch of the Illuminati, the control structure that is bringing one world government into fruition, destroying the sovereignty of nations and many, many other things. As you will see, Ladies and gentlemen, the ADL does not represent the Jewish people, but instead is using them and is manipulating them so that they innocently, as many of you have done throughout your life innocently, are helping to bring about the destruction of the sovereignty of individual nations, the destruction of individual creator-endowed, constitutionally guaranteed rights, and the formation of a one-world, totalitarian, socialist government. I want it clearly understood that the hour of the time has stated on many, many occasions that we oppose racism of any kind, in any form, by anyone. What you're going to discover is that the ADL, while calling many, many people anti-Semitic, are themselves one of the greatest racist groups that has ever existed upon the face of this earth. On April 14, 1865, the day President Abraham Lincoln was shot, will live forever, ladies and gentlemen, as a day of infamy for American patriots and lovers of freedom all over the world. But for the leadership of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry and the Order of B'nai B'rith and its 20th century secret police arm, the Anti-Defamation League, April 14, 1865, is a day that will be long remembered for a very different reason. The B'nai B'rith, a pivotal player in the British Freemasonic plot to destroy the Union, was implicated in Lincoln's assassination, something that you've never been taught. 
That fact does not square very well with its long cultivated but totally unwarranted reputation as a Jewish social service organization. In taking command of the Western Front in 1862, General Grant issued Order Number 11, which expelled all Jews from the military district within 24 hours of its implementation. U.S. Grant was no anti-Semite, ladies and gentlemen. He was reacting to the activities of B'nai B'rith and leading Confederates like Judah P. Benjamin. Lincoln, however, cognizant of the need to avoid blanket attacks against religious or ethnic groups, rescinded the order, which was the proper thing to do. For all Jews are not members of B'nai B'rith, and B'nai B'rith was not solely at guilt. The Civil War was actually engineered and brought about by British intelligence through their arm of the Illuminati in the United States headed by Albert Pike, the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, whose headquarters at that time was in Charleston, South Carolina. In 1987, B'nai B'rith authorized biography of Simon Wolfe by Esther L. Panitz offered the following highly suggestive, albeit incomplete, description of Wolfe's personal relationship with President Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth. Now bear in mind, folks, that this biography, written on the basis of B'nai B'rith's archives, written on the basis of B'nai B'rith's own archives, paints Wolfe in the most favorable of lights. The mere fact that the author had to include Wolfe's links to Booth and Wolfe's earlier arrest as an alleged Confederate spy and blockade runner implies that the actual story is far uglier. I quote from the history of the B'nai B'rith. Wolf's concern for culture first expressed itself in the formation of a private club devoted to the arts and humanities and frequented by young men avid for learning. Were pride and ambitious his only motives in seeking the intellectual life? Clearly, Wolf hoped that if he and his friends would devote themselves to the pursuit of learning, they would deflect the prejudicial statements of their Christian neighbors. Wolfe was upset that terms such as money changers, cotton traders, and clothes dealers had become words of reproach. Locally, the group's theatrical productions received a good press. Wolfe, who would often play the ghost in Hamlet or Shylock in The Merchant of Venice, bore an uncanny resemblance to John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin. Earlier in Cleveland, Booth had joined Wolfe and Piaxoto in dramatic performances. Years afterward, Wolfe remembered that he had met Booth once again at the Willard Hotel on the morning of the day Lincoln was shot. There at the bar, Booth explained that Senator John P. Hale's daughter had just rejected his marriage proposal. Wolfe attributed Lincoln's murder to this personal tragedy and Booth's own life. Wolfe also recalled that once he sat for a picture entitled, quote, the assassination of President Lincoln, end quote. In his own book, ladies and gentlemen, entitled Presidents I Have Known, Wolfe says that he and his longtime acquaintance, John Wilkes Booth, did some drinking together at the Willard Hotel on the day Booth shot Lincoln. Wolfe and a second leading B'nai B'rith figure, Benjamin Pixoto's dealings with John Wilkes Booth, were hardly cultural. Nor could Wolfe 
have possibly believed that Abraham Lincoln was killed because of John Wilkes Booth's unrequited love affair. Even John Hinckley, the would-be assassin of President Ronald Reagan, was declared insane when he tried to peddle the line that he had tried to kill Ronald Reagan due to an unfulfilled fantasy love affair with actress Jodie Foster. To understand the circumstances under which B'nai B'rith's Washington, D.C. leader and one of its founding members were circumstantially tied to the Lincoln assassination conspiracy and explicitly linked to the secessionist insurrection against the Union, it is necessary to look briefly at the circumstances under which the Order of B'nai B'rith was founded in 1843. Following the American Revolution, the British monarchy and its East India Company, colonist apparatus never for a moment abandoned their commitment to reconquer the lost colonies in North America. Although the military effort at reconquest in the War of 1812 failed, other efforts to seed the United States with British agents, some drawn from the ranks of anti-Republican Tories who were permitted to retain their citizenship and property in America under the terms of the Treaty of Paris of 1783, were more successful. In 1801, the Tory faction of United States Freemasonry, the grouping of Freemasons who had sided with England during the American Revolution, opened up shop as the Grand Council of the Princes of Jerusalem of the Mother Supreme Council of the Knights Commander of the House of the Temple of Solomon of the 33rd degree of the ancient and accepted order of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry in the United States. This United States-based British Freemasonic Lodge was chartered in Charleston, South Carolina. The members of this British-led secret society would direct the Confederate secessionist insurrection a half-century later, and other Scottish Rite members would be among the founders of the B'nai B'rith. They, too, would be leading Confederates. Apart from the esoteric mission of spreading an explicitly anti-Christian form of Roman pagan worship and occultism among the early generations of American citizens, the Charleston Lodge also sought to build up a network of pro-British merchants, spies, and politicians in both the North and the South who would one day play a pivotal role in the reconquest. Many of these early Masons became wealthy through their business dealings with the British East India Company and the Dutch West India Company in both the cotton and the slave trade. Among the founding members of the Charleston Scottish Rite Lodge were many prominent Jews, including Isaac de Costa, Moses Cohen, Israel de Lieben, Dr. Isaac Held, Moses Levy, and Moses Piexoto. Many of these men, ladies and gentlemen, were Sephardic Jews from North Africa or from Spain who had originally settled in the Caribbean and engaged in the early slave trade. These Jewish Masons set up their organizations which also maintained active liaison to Great Britain's powerful Jewish community. The Hebrew Orphan Aid Society was one such nominally benign group that would produce one of the most rabid secessionist leaders, Judah P. Benjamin. Although today, any reports of the Freemasonic roots and structure of B'nai B'rith are usually greeted with a torrent of allegations of anti-Semitism, 
Back in the formative years, B'nai B'rith's own magazine, The Menorah, offered the following information about the founders of the group and listened to this very carefully. Quote, Their reunions were frequent and several of them being members of existing benevolent societies, especially the Order of Freemasons and Oddfellows, they finally concluded that a somewhat similar organization, but based upon the Jewish idea, would best obtain their, their uh, object. The Jewish religion has many observances and customs corresponding to the secret societies known to us. The synagogue, for instance, might be compared to a lodge room. It used to be open twice a day. For a Jew desiring to find a friend, they had but to go there and make themselves known by a certain sign and token. The sign consisted of a grip with a full hand and the magical word, Shalom Alakim. The masuza on the doorpost was the countersign, Shema Israel, Hear O Israel, was the password. End quote. Indeed, to this day, all local chapters of the B'nai B'rith are referred to as lodges, a practice borrowed whole cloth from the Scottish Rite. When Moses saw some Jews of this B'nai B'rith type who tried to make their religion into a pagan secret society, he took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it into powder. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O oh, this people have sinned a great sin and made them gods of gold. The majority of Jews in America during the first generations following independence were opposed to the idea of a Jewish Freemasonic secret society. Most Jews are ordinary people like all of you listening and don't know anything any more about what's happening in the world than you do. They are lied to just like you are lied to. They are deceived just like you are deceived and they are easily manipulated because throughout the history of the world, they have been chosen as the scapegoat, as the enemy. And because of that, they can be easily led by organizations such as B'nai B'rith and the Anti-Defamation League. Israel Joseph Benjamin a noted European Jew in his memoirs Three Years in America, 1859-62, wrote of the B'nai B'rith that, quote, this is a secret society like the Freemasons with passwords and the like and was quite a new phenomenon for me. Still, I think the existence of such a society not at all necessary, end quote. He was right, ladies and gentlemen. The secret agenda of the B'nai B'rith, like that of the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite, was to destroy the Union and pave the way for reconquest. The ultimate goal, one world totalitarian socialist government. You see, B'nai B'rith is not the synagogue. B'nai B'rith is not Jews. Benabrith is not Judaism. Benabrith is just another organ under a different name of the ages old Illuminati, who practiced the ancient mystery religion of Babylon in secret. They call themselves the Great White Brotherhood, the Brotherhood of Man, the Illumined Ones. And if you've listened to our series on Mystery Babylon, you know the rest. 
two leading B'nai B'rith allied figures would serve as exemplars of the strategy for permanently dividing the Union. One was Judah P. Benjamin and the other August Belmont. Benjamin, who lived from 1811 to 1884, was born in the British West Indies to Sephardic Jewish parents who moved to Charleston, South Carolina in 1927. In 1827, I'm sorry. He was inducted into the Charleston Hebrew Orphan Aid Society, one of the precursors of the B'nai B'rith. After attending Yale College in New Haven, Connecticut, he was forced to drop out under a cloud of scandal. Benjamin surfaced in New Orleans, where he quickly won the patronage of John Slidell. Slidell, a United States senator who would later play a pivotal role in the Confederacy and sponsored the career of August Belmont, who married Slidell's daughter. With Slidell's assistance, Benjamin became a prominent attorney, even serving for a period of time in the United States Attorney for New Orleans. Benjamin gained notoriety for covering up the growing terrorist activities of the Scottish Rite-sponsored Knights of the Golden Circle while serving as the local federal prosecutor. In 1852, Benjamin was elected United States Senator, a post he retained until the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861 when he resigned to serve the Confederacy. Benjamin was the first Confederate Attorney General. He later served as Secretary of War and Secretary of State, ultimately running the Confederate Secret Service on behalf of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. And as the Mossad does today, he used innocent Jews in the North who were opposed to the dissolution of the Union to furnish information to the intelligence arm of the Confederacy. Judah Benjamin escaped to England following the defeat of the Confederate secessionist plot. It was Benjamin's Confederate Secret Service which organized and supervised such figures in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln as John Wilkes Booth and his accomplice, John Surratt. Benjamin was charged with sedition for the Lincoln assassination, although he was never brought to trial due to his protectist status in England. With the help of a leading Rothschild political asset in England, Baron Pollock, Benjamin continued his legal career in London. He never abandoned his commitment to subvert and destroy the American Republic. However, as a wealthy lawyer for the British merchant oligarchs, Judah Benjamin collaborated with other exiled Confederate and Masonic strategists in England, such as James D. Bullock and Robert Toombs. Benjamin's continuing preoccupation with defeating Reconstruction is indicated in letters he wrote back to the United States with complaints such as these. Quote, I have always looked with the utmost dread and distrust on the experiment of emancipation so suddenly enforced on the South by the event of the war. God knows how it will all end. End quote. And then he went on to say, quote, The South is kept crushed under Negro rule. I can never consent to go to New Orleans and break my heart witnessing the rule of Negroes and carpetbaggers. Nothing is so abhorrent to me as radicalism which seeks to elevate the populace into the governing class. End quote. And that indeed is the sympathy of all of those who call themselves illumined. You see, we are all nothing but cattle stupid animals, and they are the only ones who have truly mature minds, and thus are the only ones 
with the right to rule. The Ku Klux Klan, none of you were ever taught this, but it's the truth. The Ku Klux Klan, KKK, was founded in Tennessee in the late 1860s by the Southern Scottish Rite leadership under Albert Pike. The KKK drew its membership from the pre-Civil War Knights of the Golden Circle. Judah P. Benjamin's early role in sponsoring and protecting both the Knights of the Golden Circle and the Ku Klux Klan offers a crucial insight into the B'nai B'rith. ADL's later role in fostering the revival of the KKK in the post-World War II period. We shall return to that sordid tale, ladies and gentlemen, later in this series of broadcasts. Another Rothschild and B'nai B'rith ally who enjoyed the political patronage of ARC Confederate John Slidell, August Belmont, was Judah Benjamin's northern counterpart, a private secretary to the British House of Rothschild who arrived in New York City from London in 1837. Belmont rose to the chairmanship of the Democratic Party, a position he held for 20 years. Belmont was a leading advocate of free trade and states' rights, both cornerstones of the British reconquest scheme. Prior to his emergence as a leading figure in the National Democratic Party, Belmont worked closely with the Charleston, South Carolina, B'nai B'rith in fomenting radicalism among Americans' youth. The effort was in this case run directly by the Mother Lodge of the Scottish Rite in England, then under the command of Britain's Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston. At Belmont's behest, Charleston's B'nai B'rith leader, Edwin de Leon, wrote a pamphlet in the early 1850s entitled, The Position and Duties of Young American. De Leon, whose family were slave traders, B'nai B'rith founders, and later leading Confederates, peddled free trade and openly advocated a strong Anglo-American alliance. While by today's standards, the appeal for a strong Anglo-American alliance may seem palatable to some, back in the middle of the 19th century, this was borderline treason. Ladies and gentlemen, the phone is ringing off the wall as the fanatics try to get through to deny this. It is the truth. The original research was done by the Executive Intelligence Review. Kaji has duplicated the research down to the T to make sure that this material is true. And it is absolutely 100% legitimate and historical truth from beginning to end. And that's why the ADL and B'nai B'rith has never sued the Executive Intelligence Review over this report. Belmont's Young America members were among the draft rioters and radical abolitionists who disrupted Lincoln's Union War mobilization to the benefit of the Confederacy and England. During the early phase of the Civil War, England tried repeatedly to intervene into the conflict with ceasefire plans that would have ensured the permanent dissolution of the Union. During the Civil War itself, while the majority of American Jews sided with the North, make sure you understand this, folks, so you know that this is not a racist or anti-Semitic program or report. The majority of American Jews sided with the North and fought valiantly to preserve the Union. The B'nai B'rith was predominantly pro-Confederate. Even in New York City, the Lodges preached secession. 
The Baltimore Hebrew congregation, founded by Dutch Jews who made their money in the slave trade, heard sermons by Rabbi Morris Raphael and the following. And he said this, quote, Who can blame our brethren of the South for their being inclined to succeed from a society under whose government their ends cannot be attained and whose union is kept together by heavy iron ties of violence and arbitrary force? Who can blame our brethren of the South for succeeding from a society whose government cannot and will not protect property rights and privileges of a great portion of the Union? End quote. Following the Civil War and the assassination of President Lincoln, many of the Jewish slave and cotton traders from the South, typified by the Lehman Brothers, moved to New York City and became prominent in Wall Street banking and stock brokerages. With the defeat of President Lincoln's reconstruction program following his assassination, President Andrew Johnson pardoned the Scottish Rite insurrectionists. Now listen to this closely. President Andrew Johnson pardoned the Scottish Rite insurrectionists, including General Albert Pike, and accepted a rank of 32nd degree in the Southern Jurisdiction Freemasons. That was his reward. Suspected Lincoln... Assassination plotter Simon Wolfe was also absolved of any criminal culpability for his wartime activities. Only non-Freemasons and non-Benabarith were prosecuted for the crimes they committed during the Civil War. The legacy of British Freemasonic treachery against the Union survived intact, including the Benabarith. Although the slave trade nominally was banned in the United States as a result of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, a new form of slavery had already been launched by the British East India Company and its Scottish Rite directors, including the same Lord Palmerston who had played so pivotal a role in the successionist insurrection. Keep dialing, you blithering idiots. I hope your fingers start bleeding. I'm not going to answer the phone until the program is over. This is really funny, folks. This is going to be done. I'm tired of the lies. I'm tired of the deception and the manipulation of all of you people out there. I'm tired of you peddling off fantasy for truth. I'm tired of our children growing up never knowing what the reality of the world is and never having a chance for the future because of it. I'm tired of seeing blacks manipulated. I'm tired of seeing whites manipulated. I'm tired of seeing Jews manipulated. I'm tired of seeing American Indians manipulated. I'm sick to death of it, and there's not a damn thing that you can say or do that will stop this broadcast or the ones to follow. And you better get that through your stupid thick heads. ADL is up to their neck in it. They stink from it. The new form of slavery was drugs, opium. Henry Carey, one of the architects of Abraham Lincoln's reconstruction program and a leading proponent of the American system of political economy, warned about Britain's opium war against China and India in his 1853 book, The Slave Trade, Domestic and Foreign. Get the book and read it. He described the trade in, quote, that pernicious drug opium, end quote, as, quote, one of perfect free trade, end quote. 
defeated in the successionist insurrectionist plot, Britain and its fifth column of agents in both the North and the South would eventually regroup around a strategy for running an opium war against the United States. As the reader will learn in later chapters, the B'nai B'rith and its Anti-Defamation League secret lodge played a central role in the drugging of America. Let's fast forward to 1992, folks, in the nation's capital, where B'nai B'rith lawyer Simon Wolfe conspired on behalf of the southern slave trade. The streets in many parts of town are dominated now by drug traffickers whose deadly poison has inflicted both a subculture of addiction and violence and a spread of AIDS among the predominantly black population. Community-based efforts led by the Nation of Islam have begun to roll back that new subculture of slavery and despair, restoring safety and dignity to some of the most desperately poor neighborhoods in the United States. And as soon as they began to be successful, they came under attack by the ADL. True to its history, the B'nai B'rith ADL intercedes to turn back the clock to the days of slavery. For drug addiction is a form of euphemistic slavery, and those who are addicted are subject to the whims of those who have enslaved them. They can even control the which way society goes, ladies and gentlemen. You see, if they want to create more crime in order to take rights away from the people, indeed, to make the people scream to have their rights taken away in order to take the fear away, get the crime and the drugs off our streets. They just elevate the price of the drugs so that the poor addict cannot afford to pay for them. So he has to go out and steal and rob and mug somebody and even kill to satisfy the terrible craving of his flesh. You never thought of it that way, did you? But it's true. Want to make it look like the police are succeeding? Want to make a politician look good? Lower the price of drugs way down to almost nothing and crime disappears overnight. One of these days you'll begin to understand how we've all been enslaved for most of our lives. All of us. Caucasian, Jew, black, Indian, Oriental. It doesn't make any difference. We've all been lied to, we've all been deceived, we've all been manipulated, and we've all been puppets on the end of somebody's strings. It is the purpose of the hour of the time to stop that. I'm not so foolish as to think we're going to be successful and stop it all. But we may be able to stop most of it. And we may be able to hang those that are responsible. Ladies and gentlemen, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, was caught red-handed in an ugly attempt to shut down any government contact with what has been the only effective effort to clean up drug and crime-infested areas in the nation's capital. The nation of Islam's now famous dope busters. If you've investigated what happened in Waco, Texas, ladies and gentlemen, you always run up against the ADL and B'nai B'rith. They instigated it. 
They brought it into being. They promoted it. They pressed it. And they are the ones who released the lies to the press around the country that kept the American people in the dark. When Washington, D.C. Mayor Sharon Pratt Kelly issued an official proclamation honoring Nation of Islam leader Dr. Abdul Alim Muhammad for his leadership in the Dope Busters campaign and for his groundbreaking work in treating AIDS patients with Imuviron, an African-developed anti-AIDS drug, the ADL went absolutely insane. They had ignored these people until they began to take the drugs off the streets. Make sure you understand that. Kelly was repeatedly hit with ADL organized delegations demanding that the proclamation be rescinded lest she too be identified as an anti-Semite. And this is how they blackmail leaders and police chiefs and mayors and military officers into doing their bidding for fear of being labeled anti-Semitic. You've all learned you can call me whatever you want. doesn't make any difference. I'll tell the truth no matter what. Always. Always. When she refused, the ADL engaged in a national barrage of media attacks against the nation of Islam. The attacks culminated in an article run in the Washington Times, co-authored by ADL National Director Abe Foxman and Fact-Finding Director Myra Lansky-Boland. Ultimately, Kelly succumbed to ADL demands and issued an open letter to the community in which she continued to praise Dr. Muhammad's work against drugs, violence, and AIDS, but condemned alleged anti-Semitic statements attributed to him by the ADL. You see how it works, folks? She caved in because she was afraid she wouldn't be re-elected mayor in the next election. She lost my respect. She probably lost a lot of people's respect. But she doesn't care. Her political career is safe. What was really at the heart of the Washington Times article, which was otherwise a potpourri of outrageous and unsubstantiated charges against the nation of Islam, was a demand that Congress defeat the major appropriations bill for the Department of Housing and Urban Development over the question of whether HUD rules should permit a HUD contractor to hire the dope busters to provide security for a federally subsidized housing project in Los Angeles. The ADL was particularly upset about the national attention the successful dope busters drug eradication program was getting. The Dope Busters were founded in Washington, D.C. in 1988. Since then, unarmed Dope Buster patrols have been able to eradicate drug trafficking at the street level in nine Washington ghetto neighborhoods and private housing projects, completely and totally disrupting the plans of the Illuminati to control those people. They've done this with no deaths and very, very little violence. Exemplary of the success of the program is the Mayfair Mansions housing complex in northeast Washington, 
Mayfair Mansions went from an ugly, unsafe, open-air drug market in 1988 to being a handsomely restored, safe, vibrant community as a result of dope-buster patrols. When HUD Secretary Jack Kemp visited Mayfair Mansions earlier this year, he admitted that the nation of Islam's dope-busters deserved the credit and indicated that he was open to granting the patrols federal government contracts. Actually, it wasn't this year. Ladies and gentlemen, it was in 1992. Tenants in public and private housing projects from New York to Baltimore to Los Angeles are demanding dope-buster patrols. In most cases, the idea has the support of local police and government agencies who have failed to find any other effective way to curtail the intensifying pattern of drug trafficking and violence. In almost every case, the ADL has attempted to block the tenant's choice of security force. The tenant leaders who refuse to back down have been subjected to threats, harassments, break-ins, and other forms of intimidation. This time, however, the ADL may have committed a fatal error in launching such an open and vicious attack on the nation of Islam. Dr. Abdul Alim Mohammed is not only a leader of the nation of Islam, he's one of the most respected community leaders in the Washington area, and his pioneering work against AIDS is gaining him international recognition. The black and Hispanic communities in the United States are disproportionately infected by the deadly virus, but have had almost no access to the accepted treatment which consists of the prohibitively expensive and highly toxic AZT, DDI, or DDC. And as we've revealed on this program, those drugs may really be the cause of death of AIDS patients. Dr. Mohammed and New York City physician Dr. Barbara Justice have reported dramatic success in treating more than 600 patients who are HIV positive with immunoviron, the drug they brought back from Kenya. The pair is also credited with bringing vital information concerning this new treatment modality to both the general public and the medical profession. Taking the point in a courageous effort to avert what would otherwise be the worst holocaust to hit the human race. Similarly, the ADL's charges against the dope busters carry little credibility and leave the ADL completely exposed as nothing more than a protection racket for the drug cartel. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the truth. The dope busters enjoy the intense support of the communities they serve and have an unprecedented record of success. Wherever they go, the dope busters convey an unmistakable message of hope and inspiration to the community that the war on drugs can be won. Interviews with the residents of the communities served by the dope busters make clear that they believe that it is that message and nothing else that has made the nation of Islam and the dope busters a target of ADL attack. In a community where the twin plagues of drug addiction and AIDS are the most visible vestiges of slavery, the ADL has shown that despite the passage of time, its true loyalties lie with the slave masters. Now, in 1985, the ADL proudly gave its Torch of Liberty Award to Las Vegas businessman Morris Barney Dalitz. You don't know who that is, do you? 
The awards ceremony, a strictly black tie affair, was given front page attention in the league's monthly bulletin, which praised Dalitz as a great philanthropist who had donated generously to the ADL over the years. Dalitz's generosity was motivated by a lot more than an impulse to help out a favorite charity. As one of the most important figures in organized crime over a period of 60 years and as a lifetime right-hand man to organized crime's 20th century chairman of the board, Meyer Lansky, Moe Dalitz was well aware of the fact that the Anti-Defamation League was from its founding a powerful secret arm of the Illuminati. The go-between between the National Crime Syndicate and the respectable arms of the secret organization that is out to control the world. Without the ADL's undaunted public relations work on behalf of organized crime, the United States would have never been flooded with illegal drugs and gangsters like Dalitz and Langsky would have long ago been carted off to the penitentiary. Dalitz was one of the kingpins of the Prohibition-era bootlegging business. And he, along with three other gangsters, Morris Kleinman, Sam Tucker, and Louis Rothkopf, ran the Cleveland underworld. Their self-described, quote, Jewish Navy, end quote, smuggled rot-gut whiskey across the Great Lakes from Canada into the Midwest United States. Now, don't get all carried away by the term Jewish Navy because the Irish gangsters called themselves the Irish whatever they were called. It's human nature. On the Canadian side of the lakes, the booze was manufactured by the Bronfman Gang, led by Sam and Abe Bronfman, second-generation Romanian immigrants whose father had been brought over to Canada by the B'nai B'rith allied Baron de Hirsch Fund and had set up a string of whorehouses. Sam and Abe used their pure drug company, which was established with the help of the Hudson's Bay Company to manufacture illegal whiskey during the Canadian Prohibition, which was 1915 to 1919. When Canada legalized booze after learning their lesson and the United States instituted its ban a year later, not having learned anything, they were all ready to become the major suppliers to the gangsters south of the border. United States government documents, these are government documents from the Prohibition era, claim that over 34,000 Americans died of alcohol poisoning drinking the Bronfman brew. Not from drinking alcohol, folks, but from drinking this specific brew. It was poison. Today, Sam Bronfman's son, Edgar, is a national commissioner of the ADL and the head of its powerful New York appeal. We'll pick his trail up later, for he's dirty too. Following Prohibition, Moe Dalitz became the undisputed crime boss of Cleveland, expanding his criminal operations, gambling, labor, racketeering, money laundering, tax evasion from Hollywood and Las Vegas to Miami. One of his Miami investments, a night spot called the Frolic Club, was a joint venture with Meyer Lansky. When Lansky moved into Cuba to open his first offshore gambling, narcotics, and money laundering haven, Dalitz was brought in as a privileged partner. 
When Lansky and the other directors of the National Crime Syndicate decided that his longtime partner, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, had become a liability and had to be assassinated, it was Daylitz who assumed the lion's share of Siegel's Las Vegas casino interests. Interests he still holds, ladies and gentlemen, today. Lansky and Siegel had formed the original Murder Incorporated, otherwise known as the Meyer and Bugsy Gang, to enforce the creation of a national crime syndicate overseeing the Prohibition-era illegal liquor and narcotics traffic. From the very outset, Dalitz had been a member of the National Commission of the Crime Syndicate. Up until Lansky's death in 1983, Dalitz was a regular visitor to the crime boss's Miami Beach condo and was widely presumed by law enforcement officials to be one of the primary heirs to Lansky's crime empire. Now, just two years after Lansky's death, Dalitz was publicly surfaced as an ADL philanthropist. It was a sign of the times. By the beginning of the 1980s, decade of greed, drug money, narco dollars had already replaced petrodollars as the primary source of liquidity to fuel the stock market and real estate speculative bubbles facilitated by the Carter and Reagan administration's deregulation of the banking, savings and loan, and brokerage industries. As the power of drug money grew, so too did the political and financial clout of the ADL. Junk bond swindlers like Ivan Bosky and Michael Milken and dope bankers like Edmund Safra, not to mention Mo Dalitz, regularly poured millions into the ADL war chest. In return for this largesse, the ADL publicly branded anyone who challenged the clout of organized crime as a dyed-in-the-wool anti-Semite. The lionizing of mobster Dalitz was the ADL's way of boasting that their public relations work over a 70-year period had paid off. But things were not always so easy. You see, the ADL had been founded shortly after the turn of the century as a Jewish defense arm of the B'nai B'rith, the nominally Jewish secret society sponsored and controlled by the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry with its headquarters in the Temple of the Supreme Council of the Southern Jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry just 13 blocks from the White House in Washington, D.C. and by some of the leading British and American white Anglo-Saxon Protestant families including the Bush family. B'nai B'rith, Washington, D.C. Representative Simon Wolfe, the man whom Lincoln's Secret Service Chief Lafayette C. Baker had arrested as a Confederate spy and Union blockade runner during the Civil War, was now working closely with President Theodore Roosevelt in mobilizing Jewish-American support for the overthrow of the Russian Tsar. According to Wolfe's 1918 autobiography, he had met secretly with President Roosevelt at his Sagamore Hills estate in New York and had launched an international drive to brand the Tsarist regime as anti-Semitic. After a series of meetings and correspondence with Russia's Prime Minister, Count Sergei Witt, arranged by Roosevelt, Wolf had denounced the Russian regime for reneging on its promises to curb anti-Jewish pogroms, after which American Jewish organizations, led from behind the scenes by the B'nai B'rith, began funneling guns to the anti-Tsarist insurrectionists. Thus, B'nai B'rith played an active role in the Russian Revolution of 1905, and the formation 
of the Soviet Union. This activity would lead to widespread allegations that prominent American Jews were pro-Bolshevik. The Warburg family of Kuhn, Loeb and Company did fund, did fund, it's a matter of record, V.I. Lenin and Leon Trotsky, and father and son Bolshevik agents Julius and Armand Hammer, who helped found the United States Communist Party, did actively spread the Bolshevik cause in America and spent a decade in the Soviet Union following the 1917 revolution. These allegations of pro-communist sentiments, while grounded in well-publicized, scandalous actions by prominent Jewish families, missed the mark. In fact, the plot to bring down the Tsar and install the Bolsheviks in power in Russia served long-standing Illuminati and geopolitical interests of the sort advanced by the Scottish Rite, and Britain feared the development of a Eurasian alliance among France, Germany, Russia, Japan, and China based on economic cooperation and facilitated by the building of a transcontinental system of railroads linking the East to the West. Such a transcontinental railroad system would render Britain's domination over the seas relatively unimportant. We'll continue this on Monday. Good night, and God bless you all.
According to Wolf's 1918 autobiography, he had met secretly with President Roosevelt at his Sagamore Hills estate in New York and had launched an international drive to brand the Tsarist regime as anti-Semitic. After a series of meetings and correspondence with Russia's Prime Minister, Count Sergei Witt, arranged by Roosevelt, Wolf had denounced the Russian regime for reneging on its promises to curb anti-Jewish pogroms, after which American Jewish organizations, led from behind the scenes by the B'nai B'rith, began funneling guns to the anti-Tsarist insurrectionists. Thus, B'nai B'rith played an active role in the Russian Revolution of 1905, and the formation of the Soviet Union. This activity would lead to widespread allegations that prominent American Jews were pro-Bolshevik. The Warburg family of Kuhn Loeb and company did fund, did fund, it's a matter of record, V.I. Lenin and Leon Trotsky and father and son Bolshevik agents Julius and Armand Hammer, who helped found the United States Communist Party, did actively spread the Bolshevik cause in America and spent a decade in the Soviet Union following the 1917 revolution. These allegations of pro-communist sentiments, while grounded in well-publicized, scandalous actions by prominent Jewish families, missed the mark. In fact, the plot to bring down the Tsar and install the Bolsheviks in power in Russia served long-standing Illuminati and geopolitical interests of the sort advanced by the Scottish Rite, and Britain feared the development of a Eurasian alliance among France, Germany, Russia, Japan, and China based on economic cooperation and facilitated by the building of a transcontinental system of railroads linking the East to the West. Such a transcontinental railroad system would render Britain's domination over the seas relatively unimportant. We'll continue this on Monday. Good night, and God bless you all. I'm William Cooper, and you're listening to the Hour of the Time. For those of you who may not realize it, we are also broadcast on satellite. And if you have a satellite dish and a receiving system, you can listen to us in brilliant, stereophonic, high-fidelity sound right in your own home. We're on Galaxy 3, Channel 17, 5.8 Wideband Audio. That's Galaxy 3, Channel 17, 5.8 Wideband Audio. Now remember, when you switch over to 5.8 Wideband Audio, you'll be listening to me. You may be seeing something else on the screen. Don't worry about it. We are on a sub-audio carrier of a video channel. We're also broadcast worldwide over WWCR, Worldwide Christian Radio, 5.810 MHz on your shortwave dial, originating from Nashville, Tennessee. If you have problems with the reception on shortwave, or if you believe that the signal is being intentionally jammed, or any other thing that is not natural, don't call us. Call WWCR, folks. You can find their number just by calling Nashville, Tennessee, Information Operator, asking for WWCR, Worldwide Christian Radio. Don't forget, we have our conference, convention coming up August 1st through the 5th and it's really going to be a good one, folks. I've been working feverishly here to get everything ready 
and make sure that it's the best ever held in this country. And if you haven't sent in your registration fee to ensure that you have a place, you better do it right away because we only have X number of seats in this building. And once they're full, we have to turn anybody else away. So, do it now. If you're a TAGI or Intelligence Service member, single registration is $100. If you are an Intelligence Service member with a family membership, it's $150. Anyone else is $250 per person. Per person, folks. So, take care of it right away. And don't forget, we reopened membership under the Intelligence Service Membership for a single membership is $100. Membership for a family, no matter how many family members you have, is $150. We've been sending out the packets. Uh, we're sending out the uh, information on the convention of conference for those people who have sent in requesting that information. And all of you should be either have it in your hands or be getting it within the next couple of days. Those of you who have paid for your convention registration fee, you'll be getting a big packet in the mail with all the information on lodging, RV, and camping sites, uh, where to eat, and uh, maps and brochures of all the uh, different things to do around here, plus a little bit about what you're going to be doing here during the convention. Remember, this is Arizona. If you're coming, bring a hat. Remember that in the daytime, the sun is shining, and if you're not used to being out in the Arizona sun in the absolute crystal clear blue sky, make sure you bring the adequate protection, suntan, lotion, sunblock, and all that kind of stuff. Otherwise, you might get fried. Also remember, the atmosphere is dry here. There's very little humidity. So you want to bring some kind of a moisturizing cream uh, for the uh, camp out the last night. You want to bring some... Warm clothing, because sometimes it gets cool at night, even though it's nice and warm, beautiful in the daytime. Because of the elevation, it sometimes gets cool at night. And you'll want to bring some warm clothing for the camp out. Make sure you bring a sleeping bag for the camp out, or some blankets, or whatever you want to do to sleep out under the stars the last night here. Uh, it's going to be a real treat for a lot of you who have never seen the stars in the Arizona sky. It's like a magnifying glass. Uh, you'll see stars that you never even dreamed were up there. The Milky Way will look just exactly, ladies and gentlemen, like crystal spread across the sky. It is so beautiful here at night and in the daytime. You'll see shades of blue in the Arizona sky that you've never seen before. You'll see the whitest clouds that you've ever experienced in your life. So, while you may be coming for the conference, there are a lot of other benefits. In fact, I'll bet you some of you, after you've been here, decide to move to some place in Arizona, maybe not St. John's, but I'll bet you that some of you will. It's just a hunch that I have. Stay tuned, folks. Part 2 of our continuing series on the ADL, which is, in its own way, a part of the Mind Control and America series, for as you see how they have manipulated everyone, you'll begin to understand that what you perceive as reality for most of your life isn't real at all. We're all manipulated. 
the blacks are manipulated, the whites are manipulated, the Orientals are manipulated, the American Indians are manipulated, the Jews are manipulated. Everyone. No one is exempt from this because of human nature. It makes it easy for the puppet masters who pull the strings to make us dance to their tune. Yeah. Gangsters and traitors from the start, ladies and gentlemen. The ADL had been founded shortly after the turn of the century as a Jewish defense arm of the Benai Berith. At least that's what the Jews were called. The nominally Jewish secret society, which is sponsored and controlled in all actuality by the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry and by some of the leading British and American families who are not Jewish at all, but subscribe to the British-Israelite philosophy. B'nai B'rith, Washington, D.C., Representative Simon Wolf, the man whom Lincoln's Secret Service Chief Lafayette C. Baker had arrested as a Confederate spy and Union blockade runner during the Civil War, was now working closely with President Theodore Roosevelt in mobilizing Jewish-American support for the overthrow of the Russian Tsar. According to Wolf's 1918 autobiography, he had met secretly with President Roosevelt in his Sagamore Hills estate in New York and had launched an international drive to brand the Tsarist regime as, quote, anti-Semitic, end quote. They've done the same thing to me, ladies and gentlemen, as you all know. After a series of meetings and correspondence with Russia's Prime Minister, Count Sergei Witt, arranged by Roosevelt, Wolf had denounced the Russian regime for reneging on its promises to curb anti-Jewish pogroms, after which American Jewish organizations led from behind the scenes by the B'nai B'rith began funneling guns to the anti-Zarist insurrectionists. Thus, B'nai B'rith played an active role in the Russian Revolution of 1905. This activity, ladies and gentlemen, would lead to widespread allegations that prominent American Jews were pro-Bolshevik. The Warburg family of Kuhn Loeb and company did, in fact, fund V.I. Lenin and Leon Trotsky, and father and son Bolshevik agents Julius and Armand Hammer, who helped found the U.S. Communist Party, did actively spread the Bolshevik cause in America and spent a decade in the Soviet Union following the 1917 revolution. These allegations of pro-communist sentiments, while grounded in well-publicized and scandalous actions by prominent Jewish families, actually missed the mark. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, the plot to bring down the Tsar and install the Bolsheviks in power in Russia served long-standing British imperial and geopolitical interests of the sort advanced by the Scottish Rite and the Illuminati. Britain, in fact, feared the development of a Eurasian alliance among France, Germany, Russia, Japan, and China based on economic cooperation and facilitated by the building of a transcontinental system of railroads linking the east to the west. Such a transcontinental railroad system would render Britain's domination over the seas relatively unimportant. B'nai B'rith joined in the effort to sink the Tsar for the same reasons the Order joined in the Confederate secessionist plot to destroy the Union 40 years earlier, because B'nai B'rith was an arm 
of the Illuminati, Freemasonic treason, and still is. In fact, one of the most compelling reasons for the hatred of Russia was the role played by Tsar Alexander II in coming to the aid of Abraham Lincoln during the darkest days of the United States Civil War. In 1863, Tsar Alexander dispatched the powerful Russian Navy to the United States ports of New York and San Francisco and threatened to go to war against Britain if the Crown joined the war on the side of the Confederacy. This probably, this probably, without any public recognition whatsoever, is what eventually enabled the North to win the war, for Britain to stay out. They didn't want to stay out. They were forced to. At the same time, the so-called Jewish-Bolshevik ties were being targeted, frequently by people with actual anti-Semitic biases. Diligent local police around the United States were becoming legitimately alarmed at the growing crime problem. New York City Police Commissioner Theodore A. Bingham, in September 1908, pinned an article for the prestigious North American Review titled, quote, Foreign Criminals in New York, end quote. The article detailed the rise of gambling, prostitution, and drugs on New York's Lower East Side, emphasizing the role of Jewish, Italian, and Irish immigrant gangsters in that crime explosion. Bingham was not alone in his concern about the rise of gangsterism in the Jewish communities of the metropolitan New York area and beyond. You see, in April 1910, the leading Jewish families of the United States, Germany, France, and Great Britain sent delegates to a Jewish international convention on the suppression of the traffic in girls and women in London. Keynote speaker Arthur R. Morrow delivered an alarming report on the involvement of Jewish gangsters in the worldwide white slave trade and in big-time prostitution. Now, for those of you who believe that this is all being brought about by the Jews, remember, these were the leading families, the leading Jewish families, of the United States, Germany, France, and Great Britain, who sent delegates to a Jewish international convention and brought the spotlight to this illegal and criminal traffic in girls and women. They were not guilty of participation. They, in fact, wanted it stopped. Quote, I wish I had time to tell you all I know, which goes to show that the traffic of Jewesses is almost worldwide, but I must restrict myself to a few incidents to prove that an extensive traffic does exist. In 1901, a rabbi came from the Transvaal and told me that the amount of Jewish prostitution and traffic in Johannesburg, Pretoria, Lorenko, Marx, Beria, and Salisbury are appalling. In later years, the same story came from another rabbi regarding Cape Town. In 1903, a Jewish schoolmaster who had spent some time in Egypt said that the traffic by Jews of Jewesses to Alexandria, Cairo, and Port Said was an absolute scandal. There were Greek, Italian, and French prostitutes, but they were far outnumbered by the Jewesses. We have received and have correspondence to show that this awful condition of affairs exists in Calcutta to a large extent, and also all along the three ports of China. From the chief rabbi of Constantinople, from a distinguished Jewish-American scholar, from a prominent London gentleman, and from a schoolmistress in Kalata, we have had letters during the past six months describing an outrageous condition of affairs 
in Constantinople where traffic in prostitutes is carried out openly and shamelessly and where the traffickers have their own synagogue. They say things in Damascus are even worse. End quote. Already in 1909, the leading, quote, our crowd, end quote, families of New York had established their own Bureau of Social Morals, headed by Rabbi Judah P. Magnus. The Bureau hired private detective Abe Schoenfeld, an investigator for John D. Rockefeller, Jr., to infiltrate and profile the organized crime structure centered on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Schoenfeld's mission was hardly that of crime buster, folks. In 1922, Rabbi Magnus took those voluminous files with him when he moved to Jerusalem and founded the Hebrew University. To this day, the genealogy chart of organized crime remains a part of the university's most closely guarded archives. It was during this same period of mounting concern over the exposure of Jewish surnamed gangsters that the Anti-Defamation League was founded, not to protect the Jewish people, but to protect the Jewish criminal element. One of the very first targets of the ADL was New York Police Commissioner Bingham, whom the ADL smeared as an anti-Semite for his efforts to quell organized crime on the Lower East Side. Bingham's crime-fighting efforts were by no means targeted exclusively against Jewish gangsters. His chief detective, Lieutenant Joseph Petrosino, was assassinated in March 1909 in Sicily while meeting with Italian police to establish cooperation in probing links between criminal elements and anarchist networks operating in both the United States and Italy. In 1901, Petrosino had warned the Secret Service about an imminent assassination attempt against President William McKinley. Petrosino had learned of the plot by infiltrating his agents into the Henry Street Settlement House in New York, a hotbed of British Fabian society and international anarchist activity. The Secret Service ignored his warnings and McKinley was assassinated months later, leaving British agent and B'nai B'rith ally, Teddy Roosevelt, to assume the presidency. The nation's ADL, still formally called the Publicity Committee of the B'nai B'rith, had assailed Bingham's crime-fighting efforts for maligning Jews and eventually succeeded in having him ousted as police commissioner. Now remember, ladies and gentlemen, the ADL is not an arm of the Jewish community, but is an arm of a secret society, a branch of the Illuminati, known as B'nai B'rith, which is controlled by the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. Organized crime got a big boost as a result. What's more, the effort to establish the links between organized crime, international anarchist circles, and perhaps the Scottish Rite and B'nai B'rith secret societies was stillborn. The man who founded and headed up the ADL for its first 30 years was Sigmund Livingston, a prominent Chicago attorney who had headed up the powerful B'nai B'rith Midwest Lodge No. 6. Livingston was the lawyer for the Chicago and Alton Railways, a company owned by William Moore of the prominent Episcopalian family. From the 1890s, the Moore family had forged a business alliance with the J.P. Morgan banking interests. The Moores, with Morgan financing, founded the National Biscuit Company, 
now RJR Nabisco, and United States Steel Corporation. Within two generations, members of the Moore family would also control Bankers Trust Company and sit on the board of the International Business Machines Corporation that you know as IBM. The Moore family's sponsorship of Livingston, ADL chairman from 1913 to 1945, was a reflection of the underlying relationship between the leading WASP Freemasonic families and the ADL that continues through to the present. The Moore families, Nabisco and United States Steel, are on record today as major financial backers of the Anti-Defamation League. Ironically, Bishop Paul Moore of the same Moore family served for years as the Episcopal Bishop of New York. Based at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, he was the superior to Canon Edward West. Now remember, folks, what I told you about the Cathedral of St. John Divine in the Mystery School series. Canon West promised to get his Jewish friends to take care of, of Lyndon LaRouche provided crucial evidence that the real power behind the ADL and its organized crime confederates is the Scottish Rite. With the ADL's successful drive to oust New York Police Commissioner Bingham, organized crime began to spread its tentacles out into New York City and across the country. By the onset of Prohibition in 1920, the undisputed chief of the New York Rackets was Arnold Rothstein, the son of a prominent garment manufacturer and a junior member of the elite, quote, our crowd, end quote. Many of the Our Crowd families, like the Lehmans, had come to New York from the South in the post-Civil War period. They were transplanted Confederates who capitalized on the power of the British Rothschild family's Wall Street representative August Belmont to quickly establish themselves among the city's leading bankers and stockbrokers. They had participated in the unsuccessful Confederate secessionist plot against the Union. Now they would take a leading role in the British effort to direct a new opium war against the American people. Rothstein, ladies and gentlemen, operated a gambling and prostitution syndicate out of the Metropole Hotel in Midtown Manhattan, far from the teeming ethnic ghetto of the Lower East Side. He ran the unofficial gambling commission for Tammany Hall boss, Timothy Sullivan. He hobnobbed with some of the country's wealthiest legitimate businessmen, like Julius Fleischmann, the yeast manufacturer, Joseph Seagram, the Canadian distiller, Harry Sinclair of the Sinclair Oil Company, and Percival H. Hill, head of the American Tobacco Company. In 1919, Rothstein engineered the fixing of the Baseball World Series on behalf of his gambling cronies in what became known as the Chicago Black Sox Scandal. At the behest of Lower East Side gangster Irving Wexler, also known as Waxy Gordon, and Detroit mobster Max Greenberg, Rothstein put up the initial $175,000 to establish the first bootlegging operations of the Prohibition era servicing the Midwest and the East Coast with British whiskey transported across the Atlantic. 
rum-running ships owned by Rothstein and his partners would smuggle the British whiskey from Long Island Sound into the U.S. Rothstein's British contacts included Winston Churchill, who at the time headed the Royal Commission in charge of liquor. In 1921, Rothstein also opened up a British pipeline for smuggling heroin into the United States via his business agent in China, Jacob Katzenberg. Katzenberg hooked up with the British Opium Cartel, then headed by Lord Keswick of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation and the Jardine and Matheson Trading Company, and arranged the transit of the illegal drugs through Marseille and to New York City, the route later known as the French connection would remain the primary pipeline of heroin into America up through the 1960s. The period of prohibition, folks, marks the syndication of organized crime. It also marks the emergence of illegal money as a major source of investment capital and so-called legitimate business. As the proceeds of the billions of dollars in illegal whiskey and dope sales were funneled into such lucrative straight investments as the Hollywood motion picture and music industries, the Nevada gambling casinos, Nevada conveniently legalized casino gambling just as prohibition was coming to an end, and post-prohibition legal alcohol distilleries, the ADL, was on hand to directly reap the benefits. In 1929, ladies and gentlemen, one of Meyer Lansky's New York City crime lieutenants, Frank Erickson, founded the Sterling National Bank. Erickson was a specialist in money laundering. After Lansky replaced Arnold Rothstein, for he was assassinated in 1926, as the chairman of the board of the National Crime Syndicate, Erickson had been put in charge of the nationwide bookkeeping operations. Erickson handled Lansky's hidden interests in gambling casinos, racetracks, and other businesses around the country. Sterling National Bank served as the mob's factor bank in the New York City Garment Center, doling out high-interest short-term loans to thousands of small clothing manufacturers to purchase their raw materials. The loans were collateralized by the garment firm's accounts receivable. On paper, it was a benign, barely legal form of loan sharking. The victims were Jews. In practice, it was the syndicate's foot in the door for taking over the entire garment industry through violence and intimidation. Again, the victims were Jews. Erickson's relationship with Lansky gave Sterling virtually unchallenged control over the garment center. In 1934, Theodore H. Silbert went to work for Sterling National Bank. Within a decade of his arrival, Silbert was the bank's chairman, president, and CEO. Posts he would retain up until his death in early 1992. You see, Silbert was the ADL's man on the scene. He would serve as the ADL's national commissioner, treasurer, and chief fundraiser. The ADL established its bank accounts at Sterling National, and according to IRS records, invested in bank stock. The only other outside investment into which the ADL would ever put its own money would be the American Bank and Trust Company, another New York City bank, which listed ADL National Commissioner and B'nai B'rith International President Philip Klutznik as a director. ABT would go under 
and shady Mossad financier Davy Gravier made off with all the bank's deposits and then ostensibly died in a mysterious airplane crash over Mexico. Gravier's so-called death was so suspect that New York State listed him as a co-conspirator in the ABT bank fraud investigation for years. For you see, they didn't then and they don't believe now that he really died in that plane crash. Although Silbert's emergence as the leading figure at Sterling National was part of a campaign to cleanse the bank's public image by replacing a known gangster with a philanthropist and civic-minded banker, Sterling continued to be entangled in shady financial dealings, sometimes leading to high-visibility civil suits. The most explosive of these scandals hit in January 1982, when the Italian government filed suit in United States District Court in New York City against Sterling, charging it with constructive trust conspiracy to defraud, fraud, and breach of fiduciary duty. The case, ladies and gentlemen, revolved around Italian banker Michelle Sindona's looting of $27 million from the Banca Privata in 1973-74. The theft had repercussions across the Atlantic as well. The Franklin National Bank on Long Island, New York, went bust as the result of Sindona's involvement. Sterling National Bank was one of the laundromats through which Sindona washed the stolen cash. Folks, tonight's program is based upon a report by the Executive Intelligence Review, a special report by the editors of the Executive Intelligence Review. This report was first published in 1992, entitled The Ugly Truth About the ADL. It has taken Kaji this long to duplicate the research and verify that every single fact in here is absolutely 100% correct and true. The fact that none of the people, nor the ADL, has ever sued the Executive Intelligence Review over this information further substantiates the value and the truthfulness of this report. This is not an anti-Semitic report. It is an anti-ADL, anti-secret society, B'nai B'rith, controlled by the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, a racist organization promoting the concept of the British Israelism concept that the Anglo-Aryan race is superior to all others. Indeed, has a special covenant with God and all this other baloney. And folks, it is baloney. Someday you will all wake up to that fact. Not surprisingly, Sendona would later be exposed as a pivotal figure in the propaganda to Freemasonic Lodge. A secret Italian branch of the Scottish Rite with strong ties to the Mafia. Its antecedent, the 19th century Propaganda One Lodge, had been founded by Giuseppe Mazzini, the founder of the Sicilian Mafia, as a branch of the European Illuminati. A leading member of the first Communist International and an agent of Britain's Lord Palmerston, the Grand Master of the Scottish Rite. Giuseppe Mazzini was in close communication with the Confederate General Albert Pike, who was the head of the Illuminati 
in the United States. Some things, folks, just never, ever change. The ADL's shady links to Sterling National Bank went beyond Theodore Silbert. Another longtime director of the bank, an ADL man, Maxwell Robb, was a business partner of Meyer Lansky in a company called the International Airport Hotel Corporation. The vice chairman of the powerful New York State ADL, Rob weathered the public airing of his Lansky links and went on to be the United States ambassador to Italy during the Reagan administration. Talk about putting the fox in the in-house. Colonel Burns was another ADL asset on the board of Sterling. Burns Law Firm, Burns and Summit, got caught up in a tax evasion scheme in the early 1980s that almost landed both partners in jail. Under a loophole in the federal tax codes written into law thanks to the Zionist lobby in the United States Congress, American investors in Israel research and development firms could claim their investments as tax write-offs. But nobody else could, investing in the same type of business in other countries and in the United States. Arnold Burns set up a string of tax shelters in the Bahamas, ostensibly to fund these Israeli research and development projects. However, the money, minus a hefty fee to Burns and Summit, never, ever reached Israel. It was laundered right back into the United States where it could be used by its own owners tax-free. And when the scheme became the subject of a federal grand jury in New York, Burns pointed a finger at some of his cohorts and walked away, completely unscathed. A few months later, Arnold Burns was named Deputy Attorney General of the United States, a post he held throughout most of the Reagan era, Deputy Attorney General of the United States of America. Burns's name had been placed before Ronald Reagan by John J. McCloy, a powerhouse in the New York City white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment, a leading Anglophile British Israelist, ex-head ex of the Central Intelligence Agency and the former chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank. Nor is Sterling National Bank the only ADL bank implicated in the dope trade and organized crime. Leonard Abbas of Miami, Florida is another honorary national chairman of the ADL. He's the chairman of City National Bank of Miami, one of many Florida banks caught laundering big-time drug money. A top aide to Abbas at City National, Alberto Duke, was jailed in the late 1980s for laundering dope dollars. Another senior bank official, Donald Beasley, was hired by Abess on the basis of his former work for the Nugent Hand Bank in Australia. And if you've read my book, you know all about Nugent Hand Bank and the Central Intelligence Agency and the laundering of drug money. Nugent Hand went bust in the mid-1980s when one of its founders, Frank Nugent, was found dead in his car, the victim of what police labeled a suicide. And the other partner, former Green Beret and CIA agent Michael Hand, a veteran of Delta Force disappeared into thin air with $26 million in bank assets. Nugent Hand had been set up during the final days of the Vietnam War by ex-Central Intelligence Agency and Pentagon officers, including Ted Shackley, to launder black market profits into shady intelligence operations throughout Asia. 
In the 1985 Mo Dalitz Award Dinner was a kind of coming out party for the ADL's friends in the National Crime Syndicate. It was, ladies and gentlemen, by no means the first time the League publicly flaunted its deep ties to the gangster world. You see, in 1963, as part of an effort to vastly expand its fundraising reach, the ADL appointed Hollywood producer Dor Sherry as its national chairman. At the time, Sherry was the reigning superstar at the Metro Golden Mayor Studios. Among the Hollywood insiders, however, Sherry was known as a lifelong pal of syndicate higher up Abner Longy Zwillman of New Jersey. Zwillman was one of the first of the Prohibition-era bootleggers and Lansky aides to get involved in the Hollywood motion picture industry, an original member of Murder Incorporated and the head of the powerful Reinfeld bootlegging syndicate in New Jersey. Zwillman expanded into labor racketeering during the warning days of Prohibition. And by 1930, he had seized control over the screen operators' union up and down the East Coast and parlayed that into shares in some of the big Hollywood studios. And you don't think there's any mind control in America? At this time, Dora Sherry ran an amateur drama group at the YMHA in Newark, New Jersey. Childhood friends Wilman sent Sherry out to the West Coast and installed him at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM. When Zwillman got into trouble with the IRS in the late 1950s, some of his syndicate associates became convinced that he might betray some of the mob's most closely held financial secrets. And on February the 27th, 1959, he was found hanging from a pipe in the basement of his 20-room West Orange, New Jersey mansion. According to Federal Bureau of Investigation reports, Sherry attended the funeral. In the FBI memo citing Sherry's appearance at the Zwillman funeral, the Bureau delivered a kind of eulogy to the mobster, citing an article from the New York World Telegram. The FBI memo read, quote, Nobody followed so successfully for so long the approved underworld formula for success, from rags to rackets to riches to respectability, end quote. And folks, if the rags to respectability formula were to be applied to organizations, the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith would be first on the list of success stories. For the past two decades, Wall Street lawyer Kenneth Bailton has been Mr. ADL a long-standing member of the League's National Executive Committee. Bailkin served from 1982 through 1986 as the League's National Chairman. It was on his watch that gangster Mo Dalitz got the ADL's prestigious, quote, Torch of Liberty, end quote, prize. That junk bond swindler Michael Milken poured millions of dollars into the launching of the League's a world of difference propaganda campaign to wreck American public education, and that accused drug money launderer Edmund Safra got Bailton and the ADL to mediate a corporate divorce between his banking empire and the American Express Company. In return for Bailton's effort to salvage Safra's badly tarnished reputation, the ADL received a $1 million tax-exempt payoff from him. 
But Baalkin's real claim to fame, folks, is that he was a central figure in the doping, the drugging of America. Without Kenneth Baalkin's behind-the-scenes legal maneuvering, the Medellin cartel would have had a far more difficult time establishing a beachhead in the United States. In much the same way, Baalkin quieted the potentially stormy divorce between Edmund Safra and American Express. He brokered the marriage between renegade financier Robert Vesco and the Medellin cartel's chief of logistics, Carlos Letter Rivas. As a result, the dope smuggling routes through the Caribbean into the United States were consolidated and the streets of America were flooded during the 1980s with marijuana and cocaine. Now, this sordid story began in 1970, when Kenneth Baleton, the senior partner at the Wall Street law firm of Wilkie Farr and Gallagher, helped engineer Robert Vesco take over the Investors Overseas Service, a Swiss-based mutual fund that was founded by Bernie Cornfield with startup funding from the Swiss-French branch of the Rothschild family. IOS was a front for Meyer Lansky's international crime syndicate. IOS salesmen traveled the globe carrying suitcases full of cash across international borders. Some of the money came from local investors, but the bulk of it was hot money gained from the Lansky syndicate's dope gambling, prostitution, and extortion rackets. Now, if this method of money laundering was labor-intensive and primitive compared to today's high-speed electronic wire transfers, it was nevertheless efficient. The cash eventually wound up in numbered accounts at some of Switzerland's most corrupt and secretive banks. Some of the banks, ladies and gentlemen, linked to the IOS apparatus, like the Geneva-based International Credit Bank, or BCI, and the Nassau Bahamas-based Bank of World Commerce were flagrant fronts for the Lansky Syndicate. While BCI was owned by a senior officer of the Israeli Mossad named Tibor Rosenbaum, BCI's office manager, Sylvian Ferdman, was identified by Life magazine in 1967 as one of Lansky's top bagmen, and World Commerce director Alvin Malnick was Lansky's accountant. When Lansky and his controllers decided to shift the center of their underground banking operations from Switzerland to the Caribbean as part of a planned expansion of cocaine and marijuana smuggling into the United States with the cooperation and the help of the intelligence community and the military, it was the ADL and Bailton that engineered the move. First, the ADL's Minneapolis, Minnesota apparatus, known inside the league as the Minneapolis Mafia, which ran the notorious Kid Cam, or Isidore Blumenfeld, organized crime ring, provided the money for a local Hebrew school teacher turned business entrepreneur named Meshalem Rickless to buy up a large block of shares of IOS stock. Once Rickless had amassed enough stock to control the company, he turned around and sold all his shares to Vesco. Vesco was represented in the transaction by Kenneth Baleton. You see, the circle is now complete. Vesco's next step was to oust Bernie Cornfield as the president of IOS and take over the job himself. 
Over the next several years, ladies and gentlemen, a total of $270 million was siphoned out of iOS accounts in Switzerland. Officially, the money was never found. And Robert Vesco conveniently fled the United States one step ahead of the FBI and the IRS. The cornfield to Rickless to Vesco transaction may have been largely a wash of Lansky syndicate dollars. From Prohibition onward, the Minneapolis Kid Can gang had been handlers of Lansky money. Kid Can eventually moved to the Miami area and was a key player in Lansky's big-time move into southern Florida Gold Coast real estate. However, folks, not all of the money siphoned out of iOS by Vesco was family cash. A lawsuit was brought in U.S. District Court in New York City in 1980 by some of the independent investors who had lost their shirts in the looting of iOS. While not revealing the whereabouts of the missing millions, the civil suit identified Bailton and the Bank of New York as partners of the fugitive financier in the scheme. On July 31, 1980, federal judge D.J. Stewart ordered Wilkie, Farr, and Gallagher to pay $24.5 million to a group of IOS investors and ordered the Bank of New York to pay $35.6 million. The case file, which fills 20 cartons, stored at the Federal District Court Warehouse in Bayonne, New Jersey, shows that Bailton was the evil genius behind the entire looting scheme. A year before the court ordered Wilkie Farr and the Bank of New York to pay up for their role in the looting of IOS, some of that money had been used by Vesco to purchase Norman's K in the Bahamas. Vesco's partner in the deal was Carlos Letter Rivas, a small-time Colombian car thief and marijuana smuggler who had recently gotten out of jail in Florida. Letter an unabashed supporter of Adolf Hitler, who would later use some of his smuggling profits to found a neo-Nazi radical environmentalist political party in Colombia, fit neatly into the ADL scheme with his family ties back in Colombia to leading figures in the then-emerging Medellin cartel. By 1980, the Vesco letter-owned Norman's K was serving as the command center and transshipment depot for a massive marijuana and cocaine trafficking operation protected by the intelligence community from Medellin into the United States. For several years, while running the Norman's K operation, Vesco skipped from the Bahamas to Costa Rica to Nicaragua, buying up local politicians and newspaper editors, and always miraculously staying one step ahead of an FBI that never really seemed intent upon capturing the fugitive money men. In fact, it was just a show. On one occasion, on Antigua, Vesco was hosting a lavish party on a boat that he had bought from Saudi financier Adnan Khashoggi. Isn't it funny how the same names always crop up in all of these investigations? While the FBI agents were combing the island looking for this elusive fugitive. Well, I hope you can sleep well tonight. I hope you're beginning to get the message. I hope you're beginning to understand things. 
just ain't as you thought they were. And they use this branding of anti-Semitic, anti-Semitism to control the Jews and to keep you in your place. You see, you will learn later in this series that when the ADL needs to rally the Jewish community around a cause, it is the ADL itself which sprays the swastika on Jewish synagogues and on their gravestones in their cemeteries. Good night, and God bless you all. You're listening to the Hour of the Time, the last place in this world where you can hear freedom of speech and truth. I'm William Cooper. I want to remind everyone that our convention conference is coming up August the 1st through the 5th, and if you want to be a part of that, you had better get your registration fee in for CAGI members or Intelligence Service members. It's $100. For Intelligence Service members who have a family membership, it's $150. Everyone else, $250 for the five days. This fee does not include transportation, meals, or lodging. Folks, all that stuff is up to you. Uh, we have a packet that we mail out as soon as you send in your registration fee, giving you a list of all of the uh, places to stay, all of the places to eat, and uh, also uh, campgrounds, uh, RV uh, sites, and there are a lot of them, real nice ones too, as a matter of fact. Lyman Lake is only 10 miles down the road, and some of the most beautiful at campsites, full hookups with showers, and right on a, a nice, beautiful lake where you can go fishing in the evening and uh, catch your dinner if you want to. Um, make sure that you have a fishing license because there's a lot of game wardens around here just waiting to catch somebody who doesn't have one from out of state because those fines are big ones. You know what I mean, folks? And uh, if you're have reclaimed your sovereignty and know how to fight it in court, that's up to you. Also, remember that the Intelligence Service membership is also open, and it's $100 for a single membership, $150 for family membership. We are not taking CAGI memberships. CAGI News Service will be a continuous, ongoing organization. The Intelligence Service is a quite different ball of wax, folks. Now, tonight, make sure you're paying attention as we continue with our report entitled The Ugly Truth About the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, by the editors of the Executive Intelligence Review. Now, so that you can more accurately judge this information, this report was published in 1992. Kaji has spent a year and a half with eight of our best operatives investigating the facts published in this report, and we can find absolutely nothing in this report that is not factual, that is not true. It is a complete, factual, true report. It echoes what other people have discovered when they have investigated the ADL. It echoes bits and pieces that we have collected over the years, but they put it all together. We have duplicated their research, 
It is 100% accurate. And it verifies everything that I have ever said to you, ladies and gentlemen, about how we are manipulated by these people, the Illuminati, the secret societies, for the ADL does not represent the Jewish people. It represents a secret organization, a secret society, a branch of the Illuminati known as Bene Berith, controlled by the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. I've been telling you this for a long, long time. Many of the victims of the ADL have been Jews over the years. And as you will see, as you continue to listen to the expose of the ADL, as written in a report by the editors of the Executive Intelligence Review, as you will see, ladies and gentlemen, all of us are being manipulated. And for any of you out there who may be Jewish, this is not an anti-Jewish program. It's not anti-Semitic. And if you blindly support the ADL without thoroughly investigating them as the Executive Intelligence Review has done and as we have done, it would be exactly the same as if I blindly supported anti-Semitic organizations simply because they claimed to be acting in the best interest of the Caucasian race or of Christianity. So don't be foolish. in this. If you've been listening to this program for a long, long time, you know there is no racism here whatsoever. There is no bias for or against any one religion. The only thing we're concerned about here is truth. We want to know who is lying to us, who is deceiving us, who is manipulating us, who is pitting us against each other. Who is trying to take our creator-endowed rights from us? Who's trying to destroy the protector of those rights, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and bring about a one-world totalitarian socialist government? All of our efforts are toward those ends. And when the common man learns how stupid, ignorant, and apathetic he's been, how easily he's been lied to, how easily he's been deceived, and how easy it is for the puppet masters to pull the strings and make him dance. Then we can cast off the yoke of slavery forever, and all peoples will have finally a chance to maybe live together in peace. And that is our only hope, is that we, the common everyday ordinary people, learn the secrets that have been held from us by those who call themselves the guardians of the secrets of the ages, of which the ADL, the JDL, B'nai B'rith, the Ku Klux Klan, the White Aryan Movement, British Israelism, Black Racism, all of these things are manipulations of those who call themselves the ones with the only truly mature minds and thus the only ones entitled to rule.
Tonight, the ADL pedals the new age. In the summer of 1989, the entire world was reeling in shock and horror over the discovery of a satanic burial ground on a ranch in Matamoros, Mexico. Dozens of mutilated, cannibalized corpses were discovered. The grisly details of the kidnapping and human sacrifice of one of the cult's victims, Texas college student Mark Kilroy, prompted Texas state legislators to draft a law stiffening the penalties for satanic ritualistic crimes and making it a criminal offense to conduct certain occult rituals. The governor of Texas convened a special session of the legislature to get the bill passed. But ladies and gentlemen, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, while peddling bills all across the country that would make it a crime just to think anti-Semitic thoughts, launched an all-out effort to defeat the Texas crackdown on satanic crimes, branding the bill anti-Semitic. Now, if it was true that the bill was anti-Semitic, it would be an admission by the ADL that Semitic means satanic. However, that's not true, as you will see. Semitic does not mean satanic. However, that's what this reaction by the ADL would imply. In its jaded logic, the ADL claimed that technically the bill made it illegal for rabbis to perform circumcisions on infants. Nothing could have been further from the truth, for not only do Jews practice circumcision upon infants, but most doctors recommend it to all male-born babies in almost every hospital in the country as a hygienic measure. The vast majority of the Jewish community in Texas, including many leading rabbis, refused to buy into the ADL's twisted interpretation and supported the bill as they should have as, as good citizens of the state, which most Jewish people are. Some people began to smell a rat, and they were right. Not only has the ADL been an integral part of the organized crime structure that has wrecked America's youth through the peddling of drugs, but as a pivotal institution within the Scottish Rite Freemasonry Southern Jurisdiction, the ADL has been a part of the century-old effort to paganize America under a variety of labels secular humanism, new religions, and most recently, the New Age. Not surprisingly, as investigators probed the higher levels of the New Age plot, they found that the New York City Cathedral of St. John the Divine, the headquarters of ADL patrons Bishop Paul Moore and Canon Edward West, was at the very center of the paganization effort. This is the same cathedral that George Bush used to attend. While nominally part of the Anglican Protestant Episcopal persuasion, the cathedral was actually the underground headquarters of the Luciferian movement in America. Since 1948, ladies and gentlemen, the ADL has devoted over one-third of its legal efforts to support activity that may rightfully be called the plot to kill God. You see, the ADL has filed dozens of amicus curiae, friends of the court briefs, 
in legal cases often settled by the United States Supreme Court whose results have included banning school prayer, banning released time for religious instruction, banning Christmas carols and spirituals, banning celebration of Judeo-Christian holidays. Now, do you understand that? Not just Christian, but Judeo-Christian. Jewish. And most recently, banning the Bible as unfit for the classroom. The first five books of which are the Jewish Torah causing federal, state, and local governments to be neutral on religious issues as well as compelling them to cease participation in any display of art associated with the Christian religion, whether during a religious holiday season or other time, and banning prayers in courtrooms together with religious oaths for courts and government officials. While the ADL has concentrated upon uprooting the traditions of Western Christian civilization from public life, in effect, by throwing Christianity out the front door of schools, it has not ever protested as New Age religion has been ushered in the back door now to permeate society. They don't say a word about that. In fact, while condemning any manifestation of Christianity at every turn, the ADL has used First Amendment arguments in court and elsewhere to defend witchcraft witchcraft and peyote and hallucinogen derived from a type of cactus cults. The ADL has not acted alone, ladies and gentlemen, in this drive to paganize America. It has enjoyed the assistance of some friends in very, very high places. And don't forget, the ADL is just an arm of B'nai B'rith, which is controlled by the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. Some of these friends in high places include the highest court in the land. It began in earnest on February the 10th, 1947, when Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black rendered the majority opinion in the case of Everson versus Board of Education. Black, ladies and gentlemen, who was a lifelong member of the Ku Klux Klan, and was a 33rd degree Freemason of the Southern Jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite, enshrined the following phrase, and I quote, In the words of Jefferson, the clause against establishment of religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state, end quote. During the period of time, when the attention of the court seemed to focus on religious clause cases, roughly 1949 to 1956, seven members of the craft, that's Freemasonry, served on the court along with a former Freemason, Justice Sherman Minton. Freemasons continued to nominate the court while most of the decisions to uproot Christianity were made until 1971. The southern jurisdiction of Scottish Rite Freemasonry, to which the preponderance of Supreme Court justices belonged from the period of 1939 to 1971, is the self-described New Age jurisdiction. And that was their term, ladies and gentlemen, not mine and not the editors of the Executive Intelligence Review. That's what they called themselves. Not coincidentally... 
the magazine, the publication of the Supreme Council of the Southern Jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite was entitled The New Age. As Paul A. Fisher aptly demonstrates in his book entitled Behind the Lodge Door, the original intent of the Religious Establishment Clause by the Founding Fathers who shaped this constitutional instrument was to guard against the states establishing a theocracy of the Roman cult variety that would persecute those practicing the tenets of Western Christian civilization upon which the Republic had been founded. Yet through Justice Black's Wall decision in Everson and hundreds of subsequent federal, state, and local rulings, a Manichean religious cult is on the verge of establishing a New Age theocracy in the United States today. The Founding Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, whatever problems may have existed with their religion in that regard, they believed that each individual had been created in imago viva dia, in the living image of God with a divine spark of reason which they expressed in the principle that all men are created equal under God. The fallacy of the wall of separation cult dogma is shown by the Northwest Ordinance passed in 1787 and readopted in 1789 which provided, ladies and gentlemen, that religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools, and the means of education shall forever be encouraged, end quote. And in his farewell address to the nation in 1796, President George Washington declared that, quote, religion and morality are indispensable supports for political prosperity, end quote. And he warned that we could not expect, quote, that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle, end quote. For it is a fact, without religion, there are no morals. Undoubtedly, Justice Hugo Black's masonically dominated court would have found these sentiments to be unconstitutional. As Justice Black's son said of him, he was a man who, quote, could not rip himself up to a belief in God or the divinity of Christ, life after death, or heaven or hell, end quote. When he first ran for the United States Senate, public condemnation compelled Black on July 9, 1925, to, quote, retire from the Robert E. Lee clan number one, but he closed his letter of resignation to the Kligrap, that's the secretary in the Ku Klux Klan, yours in the sacred, unbreakable bond, end quote. And this man was sitting on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Having won election, Black participated in a secret Klan ceremony witnessed by investigative reporter Ray Spriggle on September the 2nd, 1926, where Senator Black was welcomed back to the Klan with a grand passport of life membership at the Birmingham, Alabama State Klan meeting. At the ceremony, Black swore never to divulge, even under threat of death, the secrets of the Invisible Empire. And he said, quote, I swear I will most zealously and valiantly shield and preserve by any and all justifiable means and methods white supremacy, all to which I have sworn by this oath 
I will seal with my blood. Be thou my witness, Almighty God. Amen. End quote. Ironically, ladies and gentlemen, all those Spriggle's truthful articles were carried in all the major papers. It was the two flagship journals of American liberalism, the nation, and the new republic that chose to believe Black's denials that he was a Klan member in the 1920s in a scandal that continued after President Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointed Senator Black to the Supreme Court in 1937 and since... It has been proven. The ADL, ladies and gentlemen, has been among the strongest upholders of lifelong Ku Klux Klan member and Mason Justice Hugo Black's Wall of Separation decision beginning a year after the 1947 Everson opinion containing this new language. A history of that involvement can be found in the ADL's pamphlet called Friend of the Court 1947 to 1982 to secure justice and fair treatment for all by Jill Donnie Snyder and Eric K. Goodman. In the chapter titled Separation of Church and State, we find the following, and I quote, Since 1948, ADL has filed amicus briefs in practically every major church-state case, consistently arguing for a strict interpretation of the Establishment Clause. ADL continues to work for a strict separation of church and state, a commitment that dates back to the League's first involvement in an Establishment Clause dispute, McCollum versus Board of Education. In the Everson opinion, the Court emphasized in strong language the parameters of the Establishment Clause. ADL stands firmly committed to a strict separation between church and state. The wall of separation must be fortified and strengthened so that the religious freedom dreamed of by Jefferson and the other founding fathers may endure now and forever an example to the world. End quote. Among the actions in which the ADL has been the historic friend of a Masonically dominated court and of KKK or Justice Black's wall of reinterpretation of the Establishment Clause are one, released time. From the 1948 McCollum case until the present day, the ADL has fought release time from schools, which gives a release for students to participate in religious education. One of the most recent cases was Doe versus Human, which was affirmed when the Supreme Court refused to hear it, and in which the ADL had filed an amicus brief. It resulted in the school system of Gravette, Arkansas, having to end the practice of released time for religious instruction in the schools on a voluntary basis requiring parental approval. In its pamphlet, ADL and the Courts, Litigation Docket 1991, the ADL states that this storytime program in Gravette, quote, prevents, presents at least two inescapable infringements on the Establishment Clause impermissible inclusion of religion in the public schools, and forbidden state indoctrination of a particular faith, end quote. Paul D. Human, the superintendent of schools in Gravette, told a reporter for Executive Intelligence Review, quote, by such cases, the stage is being set for a one-world religion. Kids are being brainwashed to death by the New Age religions, and it has become harder and harder to take a Christian stand. There is no question but that the real agenda of groups like the ADL is to usher in the New Age. The more the New Age is brought in, 
the lesser the boundaries on moral action. If it's right for you, it's right is the guideline of the new age. Moral principles are thrown out the window. 2. Parochial aid The question of public aid for parochial schools was the centerpiece of the Everson decision written by Justice Hugo Black, and there have been dozens of parochial aid suits since then. For over 30 years, one of the ADL's strongest allies in such cases has been Americans United for Separation of Church and State. According to the managing editor of the Scottish Rite Journal, Dr. John W. Bocher, Sovereign Grand Commander C. Fred Kleinnecht, relied heavily upon the staff of Americans United for Separation of Church and State to write his call to arms in the November 1991 issue defending Jefferson's, quote, wall of separation, end quote, which Kleinick calls the cornerstone of the Constitution. Now remember, this is the chief high muckety-muck of the Scottish Rite of the Southern Jurisdiction of Freemasonry. Boatger is himself a member of the National Advisory Council of Americans United Against Church and State that has worked closely with the ADL. Another collaborator of Americans United is Greg Ivers, who wrote the recent ADL call to arms, which parallels that of Supreme Commander Kleinet, titled Lowering the Wall, Religion in the Supreme Court in the 1980s. The Full Import Ladies and gentlemen of Justice Black's membership in the Southern Jurisdiction, New Age, Religious, Cult, and that's exactly what it is, the New Age, Religious Cult, emerges in a letter that 33rd Degree Mason and Grand Prior of the Supreme Council Scottish Rite, McIlyer H. Lickleader, wrote to Justice Harold Burton two years after Everson. The letter described Lickleader's pilgrimage to the tomb of Jacques de Molay, who had been Grandmaster of the Knights Templar. De Molay was condemned as a heretic after Pope Clement V and the French King Philip Le Bel ordered an investigation, which discovered that upon initiation into this crusading order, members were required to spit upon an image of Christ's face. The Templars were shown to be a Manichean cult, practicing a form of the Middle Eastern Baphomet paganism as an initiation into their inner secrets. You see, their research has confirmed exactly my research and the research of CAGI members that resulted in over 40 hours of airtime of our Mystery Babylon series. After Jacques de Molay was executed in 1314 as 19th century Scottish Rite Supreme Commander, General Albert Pike stated in his book, Morals and Dogma, renegade Templars traveling to Scotland helped King Bruce found a precursor of the Scottish Rite, which is also part of the ritual of the New Age Southern Jurisdiction known as the 30th Degree Knight Kadash, otherwise known as the Holy Knight, Knight of the Temple, and degree of revenge. According to Pike, the Knights Templar were from the very beginning devoted to opposition to the Tierra of Rome and the crown of its chiefs. Their object, Pike said, was to acquire influence and wealth, then to intrigue, and at need fight to establish the Johnite or Gnostic 
and Kabbalistic dogma. Isn't it strange that everybody who investigates these secret societies ends up at the same door with the same facts? According to author Paul Fisher, the former Grand Commander of the Scottish Rite, Pike, also asserted that the secret movers of the French Revolution had sworn upon the tomb of de Molay to overthrow throne and altar. Then when King Louis XVI of France was executed in 1793, half the work was done. Thenceforward, the Army of the Temple was to direct all its efforts against the Pope. Well, you're all sitting out there, and your worst nightmares are coming true all around you in the newspapers during this broadcast when you go to the store you find that your dollar is worth less and less you find that your income is shrinking you find that taxes are increasing in hidden taxes that you can't even discover are taking big chunks out of your paycheck government is exerting more and more control over every single aspect of your entire life from the time you get up in the morning even until after you have gone to bed at night. You know that something terrible is coming for as I travel around this country people I've never seen before they've never heard me they see an ad in a newspaper or something, they come to my lecture, and before I've even said a word, they come up to me and say, Mr. Cooper, I've never heard anything that you've ever said, but I know something is deeply wrong in this country. I can feel it in my gut, and I hope that you are going to finally tell me what it is. I've been attempting to do that for many years now. And I'm warning you, the greatest weapon they have against the middle class in this country, against all of us who are free, is the economy. They will pull the plug. When they do, if you have not prepared for that occasion, you will be devastated, and I fully expect that many Americans who are sitting in their living room listening to this broadcast right now saying this can't possibly be true. It can never happen in America and it certainly won't happen to me. I fully believe that some of those people will absolutely lose their mind when they realize the depths into which they can be thrown literally overnight. Now, I urge you to call the sponsors of the Hour of the Times, Swiss America Trading, who have stuck with us through thick and thin. They believe in the message that I am attempting to deliver to the American people and to the world. They've taken a lot of flack because of this broadcast, and they'll take a lot more. But you see, they really believe that what we are attempting to do here is right. When they listen to this broadcast, they hear things that they can't hear anywhere else. They know that there's no fear behind this microphone. And they know that I will deliver whatever message is required, whenever it is required. And that it will be 
to the very best of my ability, the truth. Now, you realize real worth from this program, if you understand this message, if you deal with someone, I hope that it will be with Swiss America Trading. But if for some reason you cannot or don't want to or can't get along with whoever you're talking to at Swiss America Trading, I want you to deal with someone. I don't care who it is, and I don't care where they're at. You see, if you're not prepared, you can't help us in the final battle that is to come. You'll be devastated. And we will not be able to reach out and help you or we will bring ourselves down to your level and we need what we have to fight the battle. So call now. 1-800-289-2646. 1-800-289-2646. Do it now. It will take a tremendous weight off your shoulders. You will be able to rest more peacefully. 1-800-289-2646. You'll be very, very, very glad that you did. Remember, whoever you are, whatever race you are, whatever religion you belong to, the enemy that you perceive is not your enemy. You are controlled by your enemy, and you don't even know it. All of us are controlled by our enemy, except for a small minority who have awakened and refuse to be controlled any longer. The enemy pits us against each other. They teach us to hate each other. They preach lies. They twist scripture. They twist history. They fake incidents. And so we end up hating each other and fighting each other while they are moving very carefully, surely, and swiftly in the background to enslave us all. And the quicker we all realize this and set ourselves free. For there is no knight in shining armor riding up on a white horse that's going to do it for us. The United States Founding Fathers well knew the seditious nature of the Scottish Rite, which President George Washington, in a letter to Minister G.W. Snyder, denounced for its diabolical tenets and for having unleashed the pernicious principles of the Jacobin mob during the French Revolution. Now, for those of you who have not studied history, the Jacobin movement was the old Adam Weishaupt Illuminati under a different name. And three, prayer. These wall of separation cases began in the early 1960s and they continue today. In the interim, the Supreme Court, with the full approval of the ADL, has been involved in banning non-denominational prayer to a monotheistic God, voluntary prayer and silent prayer in schools, courtrooms, and at other federal, state, and local government functions. In a related case in which the ADL filed an amicus brief in 1961, Torcaso versus Watkins, the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional for people seeking public office to be required to take an oath that they believed in the existence of God. In 1963, with school district of Abington Township versus Shemp, 
The Supreme Court agreed with the ADL's amicus argument that Bible reading at the start of a school day is unconstitutional. In the recent case of Kenneth Roberts versus Kathleen Madigan, as we shall see, the Supreme Court affirmed the decision of the 10th United States Circuit Court of Appeals that banned the Bible from being in the schoolroom unless a teacher hid it in his desk. It cannot even be on the shelf in the library. In its pamphlet, Friend of the Court, the ADL argues that it is seeking to keep the government completely out of religion and vice versa, lest the Jewish minority be overwhelmed by a Christian minority. Do you understand what I just said, ladies and gentlemen? But at the same time, while claiming to protect Jewry, the Bible is outlawed from the school, even from the school library, which includes, ladies and gentlemen, the Torah. So in the guise of defending Jewry against Christianity, Jews also are prohibited from taking their holy book into school, having it in school, or reading it in the school library, also from saying prayers. It protects no one. It takes away the right to practice the religion of your choice for all of us, every single one of us. Jew, Gentile, the followers of the Prophet Muhammad, Buddhists, those who follow the Shinto way, Taoism, it doesn't matter. Quote, the horrible consequences of an officially sponsored religion can be seen in the Crusades and in one of the darkest periods in Jewish history, the Spanish Inquisition. ADL works to ensure a strict separation of church and state so as to protect minority religions. Judaism is a central concern for the League, end quote. Now children saying a prayer in school are carrying a copy of their own personal religious book, whatever it may be, are now compared to the Spanish Inquisition. Do you see how things are twisted, ladies and gentlemen? But the ADL's hostility, rather than being directed against Christianity, is actually directed against the entirety of all of the Judeo-Christian tradition, including Jews, especially Orthodox Jews. It's demonstrated when the ADL filed amicus briefs to ban display of the Ten Commandments in the classroom in cases paralleling the school prayer issue. Perhaps the most ironic case, given the ADL's claims to represent Jewish interest, was its stand in the 1980 Ten Commandments case, Stone v. Graham, where the plaintiffs challenged a Kentucky statute which required the posting of the Ten Commandments in each school classroom. The ADL ended up fighting a small print statement after the last commandment which read listen to this folks this is what they fought quote the secular application of the ten commandments is clearly seen in its adoption as the fundamental legal code of western civilization and the common law of the united states end quote and this is something that should be taught in every single class which teaches Western civilization because it is absolutely true. 
In November 1980, the ADL agreed with the Supreme Court's decision that this was unconstitutional. And four, Christmas carols, hymns, and spirituals, nearly all of these song forms, which are a most efficient prophylactic to protect children from the horrors of the rock, drug, sex, counterculture, and are a bridge to classical music, have been all but banned with the agreement of the ADL from public schools. One recent case, Flory versus Sioux Falls, school district, 49 to 5, grew out of a 1978 school board policy which allowed the singing of Christmas carols, the performance of religious plays, and the display of religious symbols in Sioux Falls public schools. Although the ADL filed amicus briefs at the level of the 8th United States Circuit Court of Appeals and with the Supreme Court, the latter refused to hear the case, thereby affirming the decision of the appeals court that such actions were constitutional, much to the dismay of the Anti-Defamation League. And five, Equal Access Act. Another decision that drew cries of alarm from both the ADL and the New Age Southern Jurisdiction that the wall was being lowered involved the EAA in a June 4, 1990 press release. The ADL said, quote, The Supreme Court decision today upholding the Equal Access Amendment erodes the wall separating church and state, end quote. The case, Board of Education of Westside Community Schools versus Mergen, involved the efforts of a student, Bridget C. Mergens, to have equal access to school facilities for a Christian Bible study club. According to the ADL release, quote, the court held that student-sponsored religious clubs in public high schools do not violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, end quote. And of course, they don't. In its amicus brief, the ADL argued that the EAA was unconstitutional since it involves the public schools promoting religious activities impermissible from the standpoint of the cult dogma underlying the wall of separation opinion of Justice Hugo Black. In its 1991 ADL in the Court's pamphlet, the ADL describes its amicus brief as having argued the following, quote, the brief contended that both the legislative history of the EAA and the language of the statue itself reveal its impermissible religious purpose. The EAA arose following several unsuccessful legislative and constitutional initiatives to promote religion in public schools. When these efforts failed, Congress adopted the free speech analysis from Widmar versus Vincent, 454, United States Supreme Court Decision 263-1983, characterizing student religious activity as a protected form of free expression. End quote. What particularly disturbed the ADL was that by granting Christian clubs equal access to school facilities, where there was an open forum for the debate of often competing ideas, the Supreme Court, in upholding the EAA, had somehow given undue emphasis to the free speech clause of the First Amendment over the Establishment Clause interpretation of Justice Black. Dangerous in the viewpoint of the ADL. Five, religious symbols. 
As a result of adjudication since the Everson decision, it has become unconstitutional for schools and governments to celebrate Christmas or other Christian holidays with a display of such religious symbols as crosses, nativity scenes, or depictions of Jesus. Instead, what must be substituted are Santa Claus, reindeer, and Christmas trees, which are of a secular nature and tend to substitute the material aspect of gifts rather than the religious significance of the founding of Christianity with the birth of Christ. Of course, we all know that Christ was not born on Christmas, as Christianity seems to think, but in a completely different part of the year altogether. And we all know that Santa Claus reindeer and Christmas trees are not of a secular nature, but are part of an old pagan European religion. The ADL has participated in a number of such cases. Among the recent ones described in this 1991 ADL in the court's pamphlet is Doe v. Small, 934F, 2nd, 743, 7th Circuit, 1991. Quote, at issue in this case was the constitutionality of a public park display of numerous large paintings depicting scenes from the life of Jesus Christ, end quote. The ADL wrote an amicus brief, in this case, from Ottawa, Illinois, saying that the local government's assistance to the J.C. in preparing the annual display, including the use of public land, violated the wall of separation, writes the ADL, quote, the brief contended that the city is not merely acknowledging or celebrating Christmas, but that it is instead supporting Christianity, end quote. Yet in the case of American Jewish Congress versus City of Beverly Hills, case number CV90-6521, when the American Jewish Congress filed suit against the Lubavitchers for erecting a menorah to celebrate Hanukkah on public property, the Anti-Defamation League worked out a compromise whereby the menorah could be displayed along with a large Christmas tree on land that did not face public buildings. 5. Banning the Bible on June 29, 1992, the Supreme Court let stand a ruling in the case of Kenneth Roberts versus Kathleen Madigan and Adams County School District Number 50. That the Constitution prohibits an elementary public school teacher from silently reading the Bible to himself while his students read secular books. The court declined to review a decision of the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that Kenneth Roberts, a fifth-grade public school teacher teaching in a suburb of Denver, violated the Constitution by reading the Bible to himself during the classroom's silent reading period. End quote. Now I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, why would anyone care what someone reads silently to themselves during a period when there is absolutely nothing for them to do except wait for the students to finish their assignment. The Tenth Circuit had ruled that even having the Bible on top of the teacher's desk in view of the students violates the First Amendment, and Roberts had been forced to hide the Bible in his desk after he was admonished by the principal, Kathleen Madigan. The appeals court also ruled it unconstitutional for Roberts to include two Christian books, the Bible in pictures and the story of Jesus, in his 240-volume classroom library, among such other books as Tom Sawyer, The Wizard of Oz, and Charlotte's Web. 
also in the classroom library, were two books that contained discussions of Indian religions and a book on Greek mythology, neither one of which the ADL was concerned about. The ADL filed an amicus brief with the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals to quote ADL in the courts, and I quote, ADL's brief argued that the district court properly denied the injunctive relief when it determined that Roberts was using his role as a teacher to advance religion in violation of the Lemon Establishment Clause test. ADL argued that the Supreme Court has recognized repeatedly that to impressionable schoolchildren, religious activities in the public schools convey the message of government sponsorship of religion. This is particularly true when a teacher reads from the Bible in front of students. End quote. Now someone reading this casually would think that it means that the teacher was reading from the Bible to the students. And of course, he was not. Words can be tricky. And words can tell the truth but convey the wrong meaning especially to sheeple. However, as even the ADL had to acknowledge, quote, one of the three judges in the Court of Appeals panel dissented, charging that the school was converting the Establishment Clause into governmental disapproval, disparagement, and hostility toward the Christian religion, unquote, all of which are forbidden by the Constitution of the United States of America. The ADL's hostility to the basic Judeo-Christian principles upon which the United States was founded is blatant. Its support for overtly satanic or New Age alternatives to Judeo-Christian moral values, while less public, is also clear, very clear, upon close observation. The League's post-Matamoris efforts to sandbag Texas legislation against satanic-related crimes is one case in point. Another case in point, ladies and gentlemen, is the ADL's involvement in one of the most outrageous instances of child sexual abuse in recent memory. The scandal began in Omaha, Nebraska, and many of you have heard about it, but eventually spread to Washington, D.C., implicating officials of the Reagan-Bush White House in after-hours cavorting with male prostitutes. It has been the subject of thousands of pages of news coverage, several criminal trials, and one book, the Franklin cover-up, Child Abuse, Satanism, and Murder in Nebraska, written by retired Nebraska State Senator and decorated Vietnam War hero John DeCamp. In late 1988, federal regulators moved in and shut the doors of the Franklin Community Federal Credit Union in Omaha. The institution had been looted into bankruptcy by its founder and manager, Larry King. King, a prominent black Republican Party activist, had been sponsored by some of the most powerful people in town, including the publisher of the only statewide daily newspaper in Nebraska, Harold Anderson, and one of the world's wealthiest men, investment broker Warren Buffett. Following the blowout of Franklin Credit, evidence began to surface that King, along with many of his prestigious local backers, was part of a VIP homosexual cult which regularly tortured and sexually abused area youth and pedophilic orgies. Further investigations, ladies and gentlemen, linked King to Washington lobbyist and homosexual Craig Spence. When Washington bunco cops busted a male prostitution ring in the summer of 1989, 
Spence's name showed up all over the company's records as one of its biggest spending clients. Spence had high-level White House and GOP connections, and on several occasions had toured the president's home after dark in the company of corporate clients and homosexual prostitutes. According to several accounts, King and Spence were business partners in several callboy services. Back in Omaha, Nebraska, a mad dash to cover up the pedophile activities was launched by local Federal Bureau of Investigation officials and the Omaha Chief of Police, Robert Wadman, himself a member of the homosexual cult, according to numerous witness accounts, and according to a book recently published, the FBI had a lot of practice covering up this kind of thing, following their director, J. Edgar Hoover, during his trice with young boys across the nation. Ultimately, King was carted off to federal prison on bank fraud charges, and several efforts to get to the bottom of the pedophile ring were short-circuited. And I might inject here, J. Edgar Hoover was also a 33rd degree Freemason of the Scottish Rite. More questions remain unanswered, but one thing is certain. Alan Baer, a local Omaha multimillionaire and financial backer of the ADL, was personally caught red-handed in pedophile activities. In 1990, Baer was charged with pandering by local police. He pleaded guilty to a lesser charge rather than face a jury trial with all the attendant media coverage. Bear's name came up repeatedly as a major player in the testimony of victim witnesses to the child abuse. The Allen and Marsha Bear Foundation was also listed as a source of money to several charities, including the Girls Club of Omaha, that were apparently victimized by the child abuse ring. The foundation also donates to the Gay Men's Health Crisis Incorporated in San Francisco and the People with AIDS Coalition. In December 1991, Alan Bear put up the money for a full-page advertisement placed by the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, in several major newspapers. The ad headlined, quote, Not all Nazis are living in South America, end quote, was a fundraising pitch for the ADL. Bad judgment on the part of the ADL? Or merely one more instant of raising the curtain on who they really are? The ADL showing its true colors? Ladies and gentlemen, you be the judge. Good night, and God bless you all. You're listening to the Hour of the Time. We're going to go to Phoenix, B5. Then FBI Director William Webster, speaking at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., admitted that a Jewish underground had emerged as a serious threat to the United States during the preceding 12 months. Indeed, ladies and gentlemen, he was partially right. For over the course of 1985, the Jewish Defense League, known as the JDL, had been responsible for a string of sophisticated bombings that left two people dead, a dozen others seriously wounded, and caused millions of dollars.
Berith and the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, absolutely yes. All controlled from the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. In each of these instances, the bomb attacks had been preceded by noisy public demonstrations and inflammatory press statements by Mordecai Levy, the leader of a JDL splinter group, the Jewish Defense Organization, or JDO. Although FBI boss Webster left his National Press Club audience with the impression that the so-called Jewish underground was a mysterious and amorphous outfit about which the FBI had little information, the Bureau had an exhaustive profile of all of the key personnel and their mode of operation. FBI agents on the scene of the Santa Ana, California murder of Alex Oda knew the identities of the three men who planted the bomb before Oda's body was even removed from the murder scene. You never knew any of this, did you?
knowing that he was a Jewish member of the ADL and the JDL, fell right into line and...
States during the 1960s was the execution-style murders of three civil rights workers in Philadelphia, Mississippi in 1964. And now you're going to hear what really happened. The murders of Andrew Goodman, Robert Cheney, and Mitchell Schwerner sent shockwaves across America and the world as many people began to realize for the first time that the Confederacy, far from being dead, was very much alive and very much committed to rolling back the tide of equal rights for all races, at least in the Deep South. True to its historical roots in the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry and in the original Confederate secessionist plot, the Anti-Defamation League, contrary to its own published propaganda, and that's exactly what it is, propaganda, lined up squarely with the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, where it counted the most with its checkbook. One particularly sordid instance of collusion between the Anti-Defamation League and the Ku Klux Klan came to light in a hail of bullets on the night of June 30, 1968, in Meridian, Mississippi, outside the home of ADL official Meyer Davidson. When the smoke cleared, a local school teacher named Kathy Ainsworth lay dead and a second man, Thomas A. Terrence III, lay dying. After being hit with over 70 bullets, 70 bullets, ladies and gentlemen, fired by 22 local police and FBI agents. Shades of Waco. Miraculously, Terrence survived the attack. Terrence and Ainsworth, both local Ku Klux Klan members, had been set up. They went to Davidson's home, ladies and gentlemen, that night to plant a bomb on his doorstep, not knowing that the leader of their own Ku Klux Klan chapter had betrayed them and that a small army of police and FBI sharpshooters was waiting in the bushes to ambush them. by District Attorney Jim Garrison in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Botnick, with the blessings of Meridian-based FBI Special Agent Frank Watts and Meridian Police Detective Luke Scarborough, agreed to pay Alton Wayne Roberts and... to the Roberts brothers just days before the Ainsworth Terrence ambushed. At the time the deal was struck, the White Knights, led by the two Roberts brothers, had been on a nine-month bombing spree, nine-month bombing spree, and you thought poor old...
with their little self-made gatos and pointed their fingers at the community who had nothing to do with it and yelled, anti-Semitism, the Nazis are coming to get us. The Roberts brothers, as per their deal with Botnik, ordered two of their clan underlings to deliver the bomb to Davidson's home. They then tipped... You people better wake up. You better do it fast. Koresh in the Hebrew language means Cyrus. David, of course, the house of David, the famous king of Israel.
Network. Curiously, of the head of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, USA Canada Institute, added his voice to those accusing LaRouche. Ultimately, the Soviet government owned
Bronfman hosted a secret meeting at his New York City penthouse to forge what the columnist dubbed, quote, a Jews for grain, end quote, deal between the Soviet Union and Israel. Also present at the gathering was Dwayne's Andreas, the chairman of the Archer Daniels Midland ADM Grain Cartel and a long-standing ally and financial backer of the Anti-Defamation League. The Wall Street Journal had dubbed Andreas Gorbachev's closest pal in the West. At congressional hearings, Andreas identified former Anti-Defamation League National Chairman Ben Epstein as the man who taught him all he knew about politics. The Bronfman-Andreas deal was straightforward in return for vast quantities of dirt-cheap grain from ADM and other United States-based grain cartels. The Soviet government would permit the mass exodus of Soviet Jews to Israel. It was an updated version of the Pollard espionage affair in which United States military secrets were swapped for controlled Soviet Jewish migration to Israel. The invariant in the two efforts was the central role of the ADL. Now I'd like to ask all of you out there who claim that the Soviet Union is controlled by Jews, why are so many Jews immigrating from the Soviet Union? I know the answer, but I bet you don't. As part of the Bronfman-Andreas deal, the Soviet KGB teamed up with the ADL and Bronfman's World Jewish Congress, the WJC, to foment a diplomatic breach between the Reagan administration and Austrian President Kurt Waldheim, the former Secretary General of the United Nations. The KGB manufactured and the ADL-WJC conduited phony evidence that the Waldheim had been a top Nazi war criminal during World War II. United States Attorney General Ed Meese, still employing the legal services of Anti-Defamation League fellow traveler, that's right folks, fellow traveler, Leonard Garment, bit on the forged material and declared Waldheim persona non grata in the United States. The purpose of the smear job was to shut down Austria as a way station for Soviet Jews coming out into the West. In the past, once Soviet Jews landed on Austrian soil, they were granted political refugee status, which then enabled them to settle in any country of their choosing. The majority either stayed in Western Europe or found their way to the United States. Very few went to Israel voluntarily. With Austria shut down, Bronfman and Gorbachev worked out alternative routes through Warsaw Pact states and eventually set up direct flights from the Soviet Union to Israel to ensure that the Soviet refugees had no choice as to where they would live. By the time Bronfman and Andreas forged their Jews for Grain deal with Gorbachev in early 1989, the ADL had just about perfected their use of forged KGB documents to smear the entire Eastern European community in the United States as closet wartime Nazis. As early as 1979, the ADL had played a pivotal role in getting legislation through the United States Congress establishing the Office 
of Special Investigations, OSI, a special Nazi hunting unit inside the criminal division of the Justice Department against, directly against, ladies and gentlemen, all of our laws, our ethics, and our morals. This, in fact, was direct recognition of one specific religion against the Constitution of the United States of America, specifically to reap...
nobody listened. And I mean, ladies and gentlemen, Intelligence a
who are so ignorant, stupid, and apathetic that anybody that wants can get away with anything that they want at any time that they want. And they can tell any lie that they want because they know that you will believe whatever they tell you and you'll never check anything out. For all you know, I might be one of them. I might be sitting here telling you lie after lie after lie and you won't get off your ass and go check it out. It's too hard and I'm just one lonely little person. I don't have the, the capabilities to check anything out. Boy, I hear that all the time. Hear it all the time. God, I must be some super, super spirit from some foreign planet. I must have the biggest brain in the world. I must have some secret access to every source of information that there is. Because I'm just one lonely little old helpless individual, and I'm busy too, and I got a family to run. And I don't have any more time than any one of you out there has. So when you spout that bullshit at me, I just know that's another stupid sheeple standing in front of me that's too damn lazy.
position of Deputy General Counsel of the SEC before his retirement from government. In private law practice with a string of Washington, D.C. area firms, Eisenberg remains one of the nation's experts on securities law. It was no public relations gap when in 1985 the Anti-Defamation League gave its Torch of Liberty Award to gangster Morris Dalitz, founder of the notorious Purple Gang and longtime crime partner of the late mobster Meyer Lansky. The present leadership of the ADL is dominated by figures with long-standing ties to organized crime, particularly to the international drug money laundering apparatus. Foremost among these contaminated ADL officials is Kenneth Bailkin, the ex-national chairman who is still an honorary national chairman and a director of the ADL Foundation. While with the New York law firm of Wilkie Farr and Gallagher,
bankers takeover of American Express, a transaction that ended years later in a fiasco with American Express officials accusing SACRA of money laundering. On January the 3rd, 1989, officials of the United States Customs Service and the United States Drug Enforcement Administration in Bern, Switzerland, identified Edmund Safra as a major figure in an international drug money laundering scheme involving the Shakarki Trading Company. The government reports identified Safra as a lifetime friend and business, business associate of Mohammed Shakarki and identified numbered accounts at Safra's New York Landscape. Landscape.
Officer Nick Officer Nick
Jewish Labor Committee before Jewish Labor Committee before Provide the ADL with deep. Provide the ADL with deep.
You see, some people in this country have a feeling that there are more criminals in the police departments than there are on the streets. And occasionally, that proves to be exactly the case. On January the 22nd, 1993, Gerard told the San Francisco Examiner from the Philippines that he had first met Bullock at the San Francisco Anti-Defamation League office in 1985. And he said this, quote, We sat there one morning with everyone in the office, shook hands, and made friends, end quote. Gerard freely admitted he funneled classified police data to Bullock with the full understanding that it was for the ADL. And he said, quote, The guy had no criminal record. It's like we're talking to someone in the neighborhood community watch organization, end quote. Gerard had just returned to the San Francisco Police Department after a two-year leave of absence in which he worked for the Central Intelligence Agency ostensibly as a bomb expert. You see how these organizations interlock exactly as I said they did over four years ago in my book entitled Behold a Pale Horse. Many people said I was wrong. Folks, I've only been wrong once so far. And that's when I said Manuel Noriega would not be found guilty in a court of law in the United States and would not spend any time in prison because we had no authority under international law to do so. He was the president of a foreign government. He was taken prisoner after we illegal in, illegally invaded his nation. But I was wrong. I had no idea that the New World Order was so far in its advanced stages. And neither do you. According to documents and interviews, Gerard's Central Intelligence Agency assignments included El Salvador, Afghanistan, and a covert operation targeted at the African nation of Ghana. On his return to the police department, Gerard frequently boasted to his colleagues that he was also working closely with the Israeli Mossad. In retrospect, the references to Mossad may have been based on his budding relationship with the Anti-Defamation League, which has done much work for the Israeli Mossad. Gerard's work, ladies and gentlemen, did not go unrewarded. In May 1991, Gerard was one of 11 police officials from across this nation who traveled to Israel on an all-expense-paid ADL junket. The group's escort was Myra Lansky Boland, the ADL's Washington, D.C. fact-finder who personally put the delegation together. Sergeant Tim Carroll, a detective with the San Diego County Sheriff's Department, described the journey as a payment for services already rendered to the ADL, and that should tell you who and what he is. He says, quote, a lot of it was for past work or relationship with the ADL, and kind of an emotional thing that we spread the word when we get back, end quote, so that others can be ensnared in this web. Police officers from Boston, Washington, Mobile, Dallas, Maryland, Virginia, and Georgia also went along in the junket, which featured meetings with senior Israeli police, military, and intelligence officials. One junket participant, Donald Moore, was subsequently indicted on kidnapping conspiracy charges. 
when on behalf of the Cult Awareness Network, he joined in a plot to kidnap a DuPont family heir, Louis DuPont Smith, a close associate of the LaRouche organization. When Moore was arraigned in late September 1992, his attorney, Mark Rash, was from the ADL's law firm. Myra Lancy Boland was in court throughout most of the trial, representing the Anti-Defamation League. In taped conversation with the FBI's undercover informant inside the kidnap conspiracy, Moore boasted that he had worked closely with the Anti-Defamation League against LaRouche and that as a deputy sheriff in Loudoun County, Virginia, he had conducted illegal wiretaps, break-ins, and other crimes against the LaRouche group. Though Moore was acquitted, his co-defendant, Galen Kelly, was convicted of federal kidnapping charges in May 1993. Good night. Wake up. If you can do that. And have a good night. And God bless you all. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.